Warning, this episode contains foul language and graphic descriptions of murder. The names used throughout were taken directly from the Illinois Bureau of Investigation reports, newspaper articles, witness testimony, or are the names of individuals who have given written permission to be included in this episode. This case remains unsolved. The original police reports remain closed. In no way, shape, or form are we outright accusing anyone of murder or pedophilia, or of involvement in murder or pedophilia, or of covering up murder or pedophilia. This is an entertainment podcast, and any ideas floated on the subject are purely speculative, and neither Ashley, nor Lauren, nor Stephen claim to be professional criminal investigators. Keep It Weird makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information shared in this episode and is not liable for any errors or omissions in this information or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its release. We say this all because what you are about to hear is the story of an unsolved murder and the murderer or murderers may still be out there today. Podcasts for all things strange, unusual, paranormal, supernatural, creepy, sticky, gross, scary, and everything in between. My name is Ashley, and this is another special edition of Keep It Weird. I'm joined today by one of my best friends in the whole world in the basement of my parents' house in southern Illinois. Please welcome once again, Mr. Stephen Garland. Yeah, love this basement. (laughs) Yeah, we already had mom's brownies. Yep. Oh, Pam. Oh, Pam. We have Mom's Brownies. We watch an episode of Friends. We're basically back in high school. Yep. Why are we here today? So, <laughs> turns out we didn't solve a murder last year. <laughs> we <laughs> but did our we, best. We did raise some questions. <laughs> and also meander for three. And like, we've already talked about this murder for three hours with proof. Yes. Yeah. But we've got more. But we have more. We have more to talk about. Last year, we introduced you to the murder of a man named John Shakespeare. We shared with you all of the evidence that we were able to find with our own sleuthing, of which we'll give you a quick recap in just a second. But since then, for the last year, we have received messages and emails and phone calls, and we've been sent hundreds and hundreds of documents, including police reports, private investigator notes, and witness testimonies regarding the murder of John Shakespeare, and we are ready to give you another edition of Murder in the Midwest. Before we get started, we actually have to give a huge, huge, huge thank you to Richard Spray. Richard is a Southern Illinois resident who has been gathering information regarding Shakespeare's murder since, what, 2015, I think he said? I think that's when he, yeah, when he started getting, like, actual documents for it, yeah. 
Everyone around here is pretty interested in it. But starting in 2015, he was actually making headway and he gave us everything that he had access to. Police reports, letters, photos of all the evidence, photos of the crime scene, which were difficult to look at, autopsy reports, witness and suspect interviews, everything. And it's pretty much because of him that we're able to even do a part two. So thank you again, Richard. We will probably be referencing Richard multiple times in this episode. So that's who he is. An angel from heaven. (laughs) Such a blessing. He also would send us these files and he'd have like his notes on top of them yeah synthesizing like summarize basically. yeah what's in these huge files yeah and he's every an time angel. i'm like well maybe there's more to be found no he, he <laughs> no he covered it told us what we needed to know <laughs> also i need to thank the bbc uh Fremantle media and thames tv the beverly hills public library the university of southern california and their one archives the Mattachine Society out of Washington, D.C., my father, Ron Cassidy, for letting me ask him a thousand questions, and several <laughs> other past or present Centralians who have provided us with intel and information who have asked to remain anonymous. We appreciate you and all of your contributions. Am I missing anyone? I, specific? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, we like so many moms. A lot of moms. Yeah. Also, but. And absolutely. family members. So and many friends people. of the family. <laughs> yeah. And seriously, they all have different... Imp- it's, it, they didn't tell us the same thing. We no. got a new story from every single person. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that had jumped on his trampoline. Yes. <laughs> My father. My uncles. Your like, uncles jumped on his trampoline. Most of the Garland boys were on that tramp. That trampoline. Saw a lot of feet <laughs> and butts. <laughs> Probably some necks, like <laughs> some necks. <laughs> poor landings. I can't imagine what a trampoline. Lo- I mean, have they improved the design since 1970? I so I mean, they definitely put that like guard thing around the metal coils so that you don't like get your you little don't. fingies trapped in it, right? But beyond, I don't know if they've, or, or maybe just so you don't like fall through them. Maybe they've obviously made them more safe because back then we didn't quite care what happened. Yeah. To children, once they were outside, it was like, you're on your own. Thank God. <laughs> you are out of my hands. <laughs> okay, so uh, first we're going to do a recap of what we went over on last year's episode and whether or not our ideas on our suspects have changed or stayed the same. We will not be covering all of the info from last year's episode, so if you're just tuning in, go check out Shake It Up, Murder in the Midwest to get all the, the saucy deets. <laughs> Set aside some time. <laughs> Maybe have a meal first. Yeah. <laughs> Do not listen while eating, oh, um, but mm, nope. go in with a full stomach. <laughs> okay. John Shakespeare was a 69-year-old man. 69? Yeah. Mm, yes. <laughs> Am I getting it wrong immediately? <laughs> I, my, I, there's I so think it many is. numbers. I know. 69 uh, feel, yeah, like, so, that was when he died. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. So John Shakespeare was a 69-year-old man who lived in our hometown of Centralia, Illinois. And in 1975, his body was discovered in the basement of his house. His hands were tied behind his back and then tied to his feet. He was handcuffed to a pipe or pole. His head was wrapped in towels and he was shot execution style. He was tied up with yellow electrical cord and torn shirts, which led us to believe that tying him up didn't seem to be the plan. However, police issued handcuffs gave us pause with that theory. 
We also felt that the fact that his face was obstructed by the towels could be one of two things. One, he was killed by a professional who knew that the towels would stop a majority of the blood splatter, making the crime scene harder to decipher and also protect the killer's person from evidence Mm -hmm. getting on it. It would also muffle the sound if the gun was pressed directly against the towels. Or two, his face was obstructed because the person who killed him had not killed before and was not a professional and found it hard to do so while looking at his face. It's also interesting to note that the autopsy did not show any other real trauma on his body aside from a possible blow to the head and light bruising and scrapes, which led us to believe that he was not tortured in any way, possibly to obtain information like where he hid money or valuables, and there didn't seem to be much of a struggle. So it's possible he knew his killer Mm -hmm. or was promised that he wouldn't die. The police in this case are questionable yep <laughs> to say the least <laughs> lots of lots of leads not followed up on yeah we still to this day can't really tell if they purposefully destroyed evidence and threw out this case or if they accidentally bungled it if yeah. they accidentally fucked it up misfiled yeah. and then possibly auctioned off yeah well the the problem too is that we still to this day we have not been able to access the Centralia PD's investigation reports yeah. because it's still technically an open case because there is no um what's it called statute of limitations on murder yeah it's not like a rape where it's like in 10 years we can release it like it's unsolved we can't see the files so all of our reports that we have are from the investigation the following year from the Illinois Bureau of Investigation who came in. So we can't tell if the cops did their job and followed up on certain leads or if they didn't. So, and we'll never know. But like we said, they lost evidence. They didn't pursue very, very clear leads. The autopsy was pretty bullshit. Just all around. Yeah. And we will actually have more information on how the autopsy was then later questioned. And there were, I think, two more additional opinions given just through slideshows. That's how they decided to reinvestigate the autopsies. Well, what are you going to do? Yep. Can't exhume the body, I guess. True. I wonder if he was cremated. Where's he buried? Oh, he's buried Kalamazoo, in Michigan. Kalamazoo. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say we should go to his grave, but no, we're not. Super weird. I was so ready to answer that question, too. I... <laughs> Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> what is, Alex? What oh. is Kalamazoo? So the autopsy was pretty bullshit. They didn't take an initial temperature of the body to help figure out the time of the murder. They didn't test the body for sexual assault. So still to this day, no one knows what day this man died on. Anyways, the public is pretty torn on whether or not the police were corrupt in regards to this case or whether they just didn't do a great job. It's pretty much unanimous, though, from everyone that we've spoken to that Police Chief Simon Franklin did the best he could with the investigation. Yeah. So that's something. Uh, Richard Spray told us that, quote, Franklin did everything he could and brought the St. Louis Major Case Squad as well as the Springfield pathologist to reexamine the local autopsy exam. So obviously, if he was into uh, if he was trying to cover it up, there's no way he would call those extra eyes in to investigate this. Yeah, his um, his name is all over these papers too Mm -hmm. you know like not just him signing off because he's the chief of police like he is writing the letters he is very active in this particular investigation which makes sense it's a major murder in a town that that doesn't often happen Mm -hmm. in but 
Um, On the other hand, though, Chief Kermit Justice. Kermit Justice. (laughs) It seems that he might have been the opposite of Franklin. There are several letters that we found. In one letter uh, we obtained, Kermit wrote a private investigator, or no, the IBI investigator, Jack Mm -hmm. Sanders. Jack Sanders had the case files from the, the investigation, and Kermit Justice demanded that he returned the case files to the Centralia PD and told him if he ever discovered new information, he would be happy to, quote, sit down and discuss it with you and decide what steps will be taken. Mm -hmm. He also ended this letter by saying, I repeat again, I do not want the major case squad working in Centralia without full clearance through the office of the chief of police of Centralia. And at the time, Kermit was the acting chief of police. Was that before or after they got investigated for... This was like... Oh, no. This was right before. I think this was like the fuel that started the investigation into corruption because they were like, what? Why wouldn't you want help? Yeah, on this case, you haven't solved it. You just you haven't you solved it. You're chasing haven't. your tail. Yeah. In 1979, Jack Sanders he alleged corruption within the Centralia PD. Mm-hmm. He ordered an investigation of the Centralia PD, and following a federal grand jury investigation, the Centralia PD was cleared of allegations of corruption in 1980. And then following that, the Major Crimes Agency was disbanded. So that's yeah. kind of interesting. As part of that process, too, they uh, they did let. Um, at least one police officer resign because they had proven that that police officer had uh, conducted himself in a uh, an inappropriate way. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if they were cleared with no suspicions. Right. It seemed as if they, they had taken the right deal. steps. Yeah. To, yeah. <laughs> Where it's like, hey, this person needs to be fired or resign, or we're going to take the whole yeah. the whole team down. So get them out. So, unfortunately, no one has any idea where Jack Sanders' files on the Shakespeare case are. No one claims to have them or have seen them. There was some back and forth in 1977 where an agent of the Illinois Bureau of Investigations went to Fairfield to talk to a major case squad member to get Jack Sanders' reports from a man named Ron Forehand. Mm -hmm. And Ron said he didn't have them. That Jack Sanders had it all. And then they went to Sanders and Sanders said he didn't have them. And then they went to a meeting of the major case squad and they said that Ron Forehand had all the reports, which he already said that he didn't. So no idea where they were, what they contained, why they were being hidden. If they just got lost, no clue. No one knows. So now we'll go over our suspects and motives and see who we still consider to be a suspect and who we've eliminated at this point. And also some new suspects, because guess what? We have about 20 more. Yep. Nope. <laughs> just We got so, so many leads that uh, were followed up on and don't really seem to stack up to the credibility of some of the other. Like, I, where did you get these names? I know. Some of them are like, oh, my God, that's that's credible. And mm-hmm. others are like, really? Why, why'd you go here? Yeah. So uh, I'm going to do motive one really quick just to get it out of the way because I don't think that this is it. But we have to cover it. Uh, serial killer <laughs> was the first motive. And um, John was rumored to be a gay man. And Stephen and I have uncovered enough testimony and evidence to say pretty clearly that he was homosexual. Yeah, almost yeah. definitely. Yeah. One of the leads we had last year was a man named Don Kennedy Majors, who was arrested in Illinois in 1975, shortly after the murder of Shakespeare. 
and tried and convicted of murder on September 25th, 1980 in Washington, according to the book that Stephen found called But I Trusted You <laughs> by Anne Rule. <laughs> Don Majors would use hookup magazines to seek out victims to exploit and occasionally murder. And we found out that John Shakespeare had been a sub. A John Shakespeare had been a subscriber to a magazine that fit that bill. Mm -hmm. The magazine was called the Odyssey Classifieds and was part of the Odyssey Club that was located on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills, California. The Odyssey Classifieds were essentially grinder for the 70s. Yeah. That's no, how I would describe it. With some, more porn. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It, it was like, I couldn't tell if you just subscribed for the ads or the porn. Like, come for one, get both. Or, <laughs> But It seems like both. the Classifieds kind of came around issue seven. Mm. Like, it did. It was originally, it was just porn. And it was just kind of previews of porn. Yeah. It was like photos. It it's more like it's not even like a magazine. It's more like brochures. Yeah, like uh, what something you'd pick up uh, when you go to like a Branson hotel or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, the, the, that's the shape and color it's design. Like explore of Branson, stores. and also, do you like dicks? Yeah, just massive ones. <laughs> we have just... so many in this brochure. Oh, yes, and John Shakespeare for sure sent in a check for an ad for the Odyssey a week before he was found dead. We know that. For sure now, because we actually have a copy of the check that he sent mm -hmm. in. The last episode, we just kind of heard that there was a check. Yeah. But we actually have the scan of it, so that's kind of amazing. Unfortunately, there is no information on whether or not he submitted ads prior to this one. And I've had zero luck tracking down any information on the Odyssey classifieds, really. Literally, the Beverly Hills Public Library didn't even have anything. And this place, the, the Odyssey was located in beverly hills yeah. which is kind of strange you can find plenty of porn brochures but mm -hmm. and then they have like a sample of what the ads looked like yeah but you couldn't even really tell if those were like actual ads that they had taken or if they had you know handwritten yeah. copy to simulate what the ads should look like yeah exactly i did find a handful of brochures and ads from the odyssey club and classifieds but the information i was hoping to receive was more on the records end of things um and no luck mm -hmm. i just got a bunch of porn yeah i know <laughs> which I, is not the worst thing to have but it's not what i wanted i just loved how often they were trying to sell posters poster yeah. size pictures would you like a poster of this giant penis it's just yeah yes. they, most of them weren't actually pornographic they were just like sexy nudes you know but yeah. they were like intimidating <laughs> <laughs> they were intimidating and also kind of made you feel bad about yourself oh first you know, I just, I, I don't want anyone to see me without my clothes on now. Also, it's interesting. We were just looking through the brochures before we started recording and realized that, like, you know, you could order the tapes, but they weren't tapes. They were reels. Yeah. They were either eight millimeter or they were super eight millimeter. Yeah. So those so are you the had to have a projection. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if most of the people buying the tapes had like porn houses. Yeah, like, you know, or, their special room. Or a special Which I, room. You know, like, you see in a lot of movies when they'll pull out the projector, like, there is basically a room devoted to that space. Yeah. Like, if you're going to put in the investment to buy a movie projector. Yeah, you might as well 70s. put in the investment to buy one of those, that paper that rolls down. Yeah. Like, in classrooms where you Which grab that the could little. Which, that could be with that, that, the bottom of that tripod could be the bottom of a stand for that, True. like a, a portable stand, but yeah. it could just be a port, uh, tripod, it could just for be a tripod for his camera. Yeah. I also reached out to the advocate 
the Los Angeles LGBTQ Center, USC Archives, and the Mattersteen Society, and none of them have anything on the classifieds. I can say now, though, that I do not believe the Odyssey Club was related to the Delta Foundation it, in any there way. Was, there was just no connection no. that we could see. In the last episode, we talked about the Delta Foundation, the Odyssey Foundation, and the Hermes publication in Chicago, um, it, the, which operated at the same time period. And these publications and organizations were linked to child pornography and child sex trafficking. And the Odyssey Club was completely separate. And it was uh, actually an LGBT group that was a subset of a larger organization known as the Mattachine Society, which was one of the earliest LGBT gay rights organizations in the United States whose goal was to protect and improve the rights of gay men. Mm. So not the same. But again, you know, we talk about this in the first episode. Even the Delta Project may have just been a gay porn magazine. But because it was the 70s, it was automatically, um, you know, labeled as deviant, labeled as, yeah, deviant and had to be had to be illegal in yeah. some way. So who knows? There's no information on that on the Delta Project online anywhere. And it's very frustrating. Unfortunately, the police never attempted to question or contact Don Kennedy majors, according to their files. But we have no idea if that's just not a testimony we were able to get our hands on or if that evidence was also lost by Centralia PD. Yeah, I mean, in some ways we're fortunate because the IBI definitely had more resources than Centralia PD yeah, ever did. Yeah, seemed like it. Um, but not having the original investigation, like not being able to see... Because we have handwritten notes. We have like mm-hmm. literally the police notes that, and then the typed up report that they did. So you can see the stuff that they left out because they didn't necessarily think it was important enough to include in a report. Yeah. Um, I mean, if we had that for the original investigation, we'd have a lot of weird stuff written down that we could probably. Look into. Yeah. And it would be interesting too because you'd be able to see, because the Illinois Bureau of Investigation investigated in 1976. Mm-hmm. And the original investigation took place, obviously, in 1975. So you'd be able to see how people's stories changed Mm -hmm. as well. Like, we can't see what their original testimony was. We can only see what their second testimony was when they were re-questioned. I want to see what Ralph Porter said, like, the night of. Yeah. Because Ralph Porter's story changed a million times, but that's another story. So Don Kennedy Majors is kind of a dead end for now, but I still think that he is... A viable suspect yeah, because he did commit uh, crimes almost exactly like that one in the exact same area at the exact same time. Yeah. And he had red hair and he like he matched the description of uh, the, the mysterious hitchhiker that was seen in town. Yeah. Not necessarily the artist's drawings. No. <laughs> Those all look so different. So from- different. The verbal descriptions. The other serial killer angle we covered was John Wayne Gacy. Nothing new on the Gacy front, except that I will reiterate that I just don't think it was him. It's an exciting theory. And yes, there are similarities in the murder, all of which we discuss and shake it up. But the magazine connection has been defunct, too, like the Delta Project connection has been defunct. We know he wasn't a Delta Project subscriber. He was an Odyssey Club subscriber. As for the murder itself, the use of the handcuffs, you know, Gacy would regularly trick people into putting on handcuffs. Mm -hmm. And it definitely seemed like there wasn't a struggle with John Shakespeare. The handcuffs came up so much in this investigation, too. Like, they really pursued that. Well, because some people said they were his. Yeah. 
but uh, but the one person uh, yeah no i remember that i remember one interview saying like they saw a pair in his basement mm-hmm. but that they were old and not they shiny ma- and yeah. new like the the other one and so many people just owned handcuffs in centralia also like so many people <laughs> who were uh, interviewed or like, yeah he suspected. had handcuffs it was like why why does everyone have handcuffs is that a thing yeah one person had like a court assigned social worker but also just constantly had handcuffs on his like belt loop yeah why well gacy also would regularly regularly stuff rags into the victim's mouths or wrap cloth around their heads because of an incident that he had with a boy he murdered in 1974 in which quote fluid leaked out of his mouth and nose when his body was stored in his closet and Shakespeare was gagged. Uh, Gacy admitted before his death that 1975 was the year that he really began to increase the frequency of his excursions for sex with young males. He referred to these jaunts as cruising. And before his divorce in February of 1976, he regularly did this on business trips, which could have absolutely led him to southern Illinois. But we were never able to find a connection to Shakespeare in Centralia, or to uh, Gacy in Centralia, except that he dated... <laughs> Sue Terry. Was that her name? Yeah, Sue Terry. (laughs) From Centralia. But that was once he was already in prison. He also admitted after his incarceration that his victim count was probably closer to 50, not the 33 he was convicted for. However, Gacy did not shoot his victims. He strangled them. Mm -hmm. Also, his oldest known victim was 21. Yeah. So, probably not. I, I, I was looking up like, murder facts as you know like i brought a spreadsheet yeah when i came over but um there there was a serial killer uh murder facts too in america and like over 40 percent of serial killers gun is their preferred uh weapon of choice which mm-hmm. i thought lazy <laughs> like one lazy you know like you've already got a whole you've worked out a whole method you've got this like ritual that you go yeah, through got and one of the steps is just just shoot them just shoot them yeah but i mean like probably better for the victims like should not be we shouldn't be razzy. like come on <laughs> get more not gonna cut them up slowly <laughs> piece by piece I, interesting it was interesting the gun was like the number one weapon of serial killers which i mean like probably number one weapon of most people that want to kill other people but but we're not going to get political today are we yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then after you know after we kind of went over like oh shakespeare was too old he couldn't have been his victim then we thought well what if shakespeare was an accomplice because gacy had accomplices uh and there was proof like he had yeah he had that witness that got away that said like at one point he was being tortured and raped and there was absolutely someone else in the house Mm -hmm. that had to have known known what was going on voices that weren't gacy that he heard directly (laughs) yeah i i i just don't think that uh, Gacy had anything to do with Shakespeare. There's no concrete connection. But the good thing about the um, Gacy thing is that it did lead us to look into the pedophile angle. Which was just such a sunshiny (laughs) trip. Yeah, it was. Which leads us to motive number two. Revenge killing because Shakespeare was a pedophile. Mm -hmm. Which again, we don't have like sound evidence no of that happening with john shakespeare mm-hmm. at all whatsoever but his connections i was gonna say but everyone that he knew yeah like <laughs> so many people around him not not even just that day but like people reported to be near him on a regular basis are now convicted pedophiles mm-hmm. serving time or had served time or were convicted pedophiles or statutory rapists mm-hmm. so 
I don't know if that's just so prevalent and I just don't know that. You know what I mean? It's just like politics now where it's like, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, he had a whole island where he raped young women. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, there's huge pedophile rings. It's like, is everyone a pedophile? I I think at least in the 70s, that does seem to be in Centralia. Like, sorry, Centralia. Like, I'm really, like, I'm my family lived in Centralia during this time. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> but. But. Y'all had some sketchy folks. Seriously. And they popped up so much in this investigation. Uh, and at the time we recorded part one, we didn't have any names we could associate with these, you know, possible revenge killings. And we just kind of chalked it up to a parent of a child in town mm-hmm. or even a Freddy Krueger scenario where the parents band together to kill him. Oh, my God. I love that reference. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome. That would be awesome. Mm. I'd be okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> you will probably notice that our feelings towards Shakespeare have cooled a little bit like also because we've been researching this for so long but like there's enough evidence to be more cautious than we were before yeah about his necessary virtue yeah i go back and forth with shakespeare still to this day yeah. but i also like feel like i know him now oh, for sure and i just <laughs> so like i don't I want i like i desperately don't want him to be a pedophile which would make me a terrible investigator of yeah. this case oh i know i would never be able to investigate this stuff and I'll, I'll be able to tell you why in a little bit but we do have possible names now mm-hmm. of potential you know parents and before we get into those parents and kids Stephen is going to tell us about Ron Goff. So we talked about Ron Goff last time you might remember he was convicted of molesting young boys Mm -hmm. he taught at irving school in centralia during his time when uh he lived here had since moved and uh he was also an eagle scout leader with john shakespeare they Mm -hmm. worked in tandem um they were planning the canoe trip in missouri together like they were supposed to be meeting the night that Shakespeare's body was found yeah and Ron Goff was not convicted until I want to say the 80s when he was the principal of Edwardsville Middle School good lord he did not get his pension if that makes anybody feel any better (laughs) um he was does kind of summarily dismissed he uh is last I saw having a monthly regular checkup from uh, local police to just, I don't know, search his house for evidence that he has started back up. Yeah, I mean, make sure that he doesn't have any photographs of underage children. But he's also obscenely old at this point. I want to say he's late 80s, early 90s, gotta be. Yeah. So, like, his... But he's had an entire lifelong career of being a pedophile and putting himself in positions where he can manipulate children in charge of children so so yeah ron goff was he was planning the eagle scout canoe trip uh they were planning going to current river in missouri and that very night shakespeare was supposed to be at that meeting and according to ron goff's story he tells um one of the scouts uh pat studlin to go like collect shakespeare so Stedling goes downstairs and comes back up and says that Shakespeare wasn't answering. Like, yeah. uh, there, there was no answer at Shakespeare's house. Um, according to multiple reports, Shakespeare was kind of waffling about whether he wanted to go on this trip because his trip to Switzerland was planned very, very shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um, and uh, B- Bob Magnin, is it? 
Robert Magnin. Right, yeah. yeah and so uh, Pat Stadlin both uh, confirmed that he was... Go- they were the two people who did this, by the way, not Shakespeare himself. But Magnin and Stadlin were the ones who confirmed that Shakespeare was, in fact, going on the trip. Ron Goff also made some weird statements when interviewed by the Illinois Bureau of Investigation. He claimed that Shakespeare was compelled to prove himself to others to the point that if he knew the person, he could have put the handcuffs on himself to prove some point, possibly that he could get out of them. Maybe. Like, what what point would you prove? And like, okay. <laughs> Why, Why did you offer this information? Like, I get it. You're And he did, he does like, he sits down and he names names. Like Ron Goff has suspects in mind mm-hmm. that he gives to the Illinois Bureau of Investigation. Which M- can go either way. It can go like, oh, he's trying to be helpful. Or it can go like, oh, he's trying to get them to look anywhere but at him. Exactly. I He listed specifically Melvin Gamble. And I, in my notes, say, like, this is a red herring. Like, this this guy is a perfect example of what would lead police away from Ron Goff towards something else. And it's also hard to say whether Ron Goff wanted to lead police away because he had some sort of involvement in Shakespeare's mm-hmm. murder or because he wanted police to not look at the fact that he was molesting young boys, which right. he very likely was during that time because he was found guilty of it later. Um, but the police did Which investigate one was Gamble. So police investigated Gamble. Uh, they interviewed him on October twenty second, nineteen seventy six. Okay. And he was asked if he heard Shakespeare was the reason Gamble did not get a Boy Scout leader position. I see. Um, so he had applied to be a leader also in Centralia, but Gamble insisted that he knew for a fact that Shakespeare wasn't the reason. And added that he had never met, never seen, and did not know John Shakespeare. He said all three of those things. Those were in the notes. And I thought that was strange that they, he was so emphatic. But Never he, seen? Is he from Centralia? Yeah, Bitch, you've right. seen him. Everyone saw him. <laughs> Everyone saw him. He walked down the street naked. Like, just, he was the only 60-plus-year-old man walking around in red shorty shorts. With a six-pack. Yeah. Bowflex body. <laughs> He couldn't account for his whereabouts on May 7th or 8th of that year and refused to take a polygraph. So kind of an interesting character. Ron Goff yeah. did not point his finger in a uh, boring direction. Yeah. And this report was from 1976, right? This Correct. was the IBI. So this yeah. was like a year the following later. following year. Because I have a lot of notes too where it's like they can't recall where they were on the 7th and 8th. And it's like it was a year later. Mm-hmm. This is a very serial conversation. Yeah, I remember. Like, like, I don't know where I was that day. How, like, how, how, would well, I? how would I know? That was years ago. I know. And the only person, like, honestly, if if somebody can just sit you down and tell you exactly what they were doing on the day that somebody was murdered, probably the murderer. Like, yeah. how else do you know exactly that I day's know. agenda? Well, I, mean, I just think, you know, it's like, and so many people use the excuse, well, like, well, that would be an important day. And it's like, yeah, sure. But my grandmother passed away about a year ago pretty close to one year ago it was november Mm -hmm. of last year yeah ask me what i did that day no idea i don't know yeah i don't know what i did the day that she passed i don't remember what i did the day before or after we recorded the first episode no that was a year ago thanksgiving in october no No, it it wasn't because it was a wedding you were down for um natalie's wedding wedding. Mm -hmm. so it was october so i went to a wedding At some point, either At before some point, or after that. Either before, I cannot confirm or deny <laughs> <laughs> where I was. Um, but you know, I definitely probably didn't after. commit a murder during that time then, because I don't remember. You tore up the dance floor. Mm. You might have murdered Sh- someone there. Surely did. 
<laughs> Go on. Uh, yeah. So honestly, that's that's the new information on Ron Goff. Ron Goff. Yeah, we talked um, about him in the last episode. He was never convicted of a violent crime outside of like I think that that's a mischaracterization. I think molesting young boys is absolutely a violent crime, but his methodology was very in the line of grooming you know like it was it was a slow grooming process and it happened over just decades um people came out after his uh original conviction yeah charges were filed Mm -hmm. um people started coming out of the woodwork you know like yeah i knew rungoff 20 years ago and he did this um so even if shakespeare wasn't involved in any molestation he was working directly with someone who was in the exact same position that offered him the opportunity to do so Mm -hmm. and it's just hard to imagine that you could work side by side in the same position and not at least see something strange yeah but also like same note shakespeare was almost everybody who was interviewed talking about like Shakespeare and what he wore and everything just said that like constantly he was just walking around in those red shorts even when he was home no shoes no nothing which does come up in the actual investigation mm-hmm. but that also boy scouts were just constantly in his home yeah when he's know? wearing practically underwear and which is just kind of i don't know it's weird it's, uh, yeah like i i want to think like okay it was the 70s yeah. but like okay were the 70s that creepy cuz <laughs> Like, that sounds unfortunate. Like, I would probably not stay in the Boy Scouts if that was, like, an aspect of being yeah. in the Boy Scouts. Well, and also something that we noticed, um, if we want to go the pedophile route, we have a ton of scans of things that the police found in Shakespeare's possession that they obviously thought were important to the investigation. Mm-hmm. And three of these scanned items are sort of invoices for a Nikon camera yep. and a tripod and all of its, you know, trimmings. And the thing is, is you could look at it two ways. Shakespeare traveled a lot. He was very wealthy. He traveled all over. Why wouldn't you want a nice camera? Mm-hmm. You could afford it. Buy a nice camera. Yeah. I have a nice camera and I'm not a pedophile. Get out there and see the world. You know? Yeah. Like everybody's and phone is a, a nice camera. Is I just take pictures of my cats. Exactly. Because I don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Or... But why were the police interested in it? Maybe they thought he was using this camera and the tripod and everything for something more nefarious. And they did develop some of the film. We know that. It, yeah. And we have like, it, weirdly, in the same uh, collection of just film from his trip are the crime scene photos. Yeah. So you start with this lovely Ski like trip. Yep, they went they went skiing. They're it's all like sitting around snow, a fire. Snow, dogs and snow. Big fluffy coats. Everybody looks warm Everyone even though looks it's cold. Warm and they're having like conversations and then it's like a dead body on with blood. a basement floor. Yeah. yeah, just immediately the next photo. Yeah, that was um shocking. Mm-hmm. Was so we've established Shakespeare's partner in regards to the Explorer Scouts is a convicted pedophile. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that he was a pedophile at the time. Uh as in Ron Goff, like maybe he wasn't, but he was. Um, and even if, you know, he was, that doesn't mean Shakespeare knew about it or he was actively abusing the scouts under their supervision. I reached out to a couple of the former scouts of his because we actually have a list of his scouts oh, at yeah. the time of his murder um, to see if they'd be willing to answer any questions, but I never received any response, mm. which... Could go so Could go either way. It could be, you know, hey, I don't have anything more to say. Or it could be, 
I don't want to bring this up. Yeah. Or I just don't want my name associated True. with the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's also. And I'm not going to name any of the scouts that were on that list, except for the ones that we have uh, the IBI investigation reports of their interviews. Mm-hmm. Those are the only ones that we're going to name. Also, and I guess we should add at the beginning of this episode, maybe we'll record another uh, thing saying like, hey, by the way, we're not pinning this on it. We'll do that later. Yeah, okay. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> One thing Richard Spray shared with me, and this is totally rumor. This is personal experience because there seems to be no police reports or interview notes at all pertaining to these suspects. So again, either they don't exist because they were never questioned, which seems negligent, or they were destroyed and lost by the Centralia PD. Yeah. But the story starts with two boys, uh, the two boys that said that they went to check on Shakespeare because he had missed the Explorer Scout meeting. They had some inconsistencies in their stories, whether it's they who were inconsistent or Ron Goff. I'm not sure. But essentially, police interviewed a kid named Robert Magnan and a kid named Pat Studlin. And in his interview in Robert and, or uh, yeah, Rob, Bob and, and Pat, they said, that no one bothered to call Shakespeare when he missed the meeting, the Explorer Scouts meeting, because he usually missed meetings, so it was no big deal. He said that he had been to Shakespeare's house a number of times, always at the invitation of John Shakespeare. He said he could not recall the whereabouts um, of the two boys on May 7th, the day of the murder, only that they had had a scout meeting the day before that, that Shakespeare missed, and that on the 8th, he and Pat Sedlin went somewhere together and got back around 10 p.m. They didn't remember where they went, but they knew that they got back around 10 because when they got back, the cops were all over Shakespeare's Mm -hmm. house. Granted, again, this interview was conducted in September of 1976, so it's not crazy or suspicious, really, that they couldn't remember where they were that day. Then, Ron Goff's interview from October of 1976, he says that when John Shakespeare wasn't at the meeting, he asked Pat Stedlin to give him a call to see that he was if he was coming because they were discussing their upcoming canoe trip and he knew Shakespeare was planning to go. Ron Goff also said that he did not miss meetings. Yeah, that and that that was just super weird for him to not be at a meeting, yes. especially one that concerned him. Uh, and sometimes Shakespeare's involvement was just transportation and gear. Mm-hmm. Like we even have like his he was a member of like an adventurers club and stuff mm-hmm. like that. He bought lots of sporting gear. He had canoes. Yeah. So like he he was going to be providing the gear whether or not he went, but he was also uh, planning on going and taking mm-hmm. some kids up. So Ron Goff said that Pat Stedlin went into the basement of the church and returned saying that he had called the victim's house but received no answer. Ron Goff stated that both Pat Studlin and Bob Magnan had stated that they had seen Shakespeare in the last 48 hours and that he was definitely planning on going on the trip. So, could it have been a mix-up? Sure, time had passed. But if it was not a mix-up, on Goff's end, he was trying to cover his ass to make it seem like he didn't know Shakespeare was dead. Mm -hmm. On the kid's end, the kids knew he was dead and never actually made the call and lied about it later to police saying they'd never call him because he was frequently missing. Still, the stories don't add up. So that's a red flag. Something interesting, though. I see no records like that interview was Bob Magnan completely. Yeah. There's no records of any interviews with Pat Studlin. Who was, I believe, 14 at the yeah, time. Which yeah. maybe that's why. Maybe. But I think Bob was the same age. Yeah. They couldn't so, have been that far apart. 
Only with Bob Magnin. And what's interesting about that, and this is where we get into the talk of the town. This is not written in police reports. This is purely the rumor that went around. The rumor was that Pat Stedlin's father, uh, the father, he had four boys that were in the Explorer Scouts, became aware of some sort of pedophile activities or sexual abuse going on at Shakespeare's residence, which included his son, Pat, and possibly others since they were all in the same group together. Mm -hmm. The rumor continues that Dr. Stedlin involved Bill Wom, actually, which, okay, we'll get to Bill Wom, but yeah. supposedly uh, involved Bill Wom to have someone, quote, take care of the problem. And this rumor was amplified by what happened the following year. Stedlin, Pat's father, was actually institutionalized in a psychiatric hospital for a nervous breakdown. And Richard Spray actually said he remembered that time uh, that he was gone very clearly because Stedlin was his childhood doctor and his practice was closed for the six months that he was recovering, like oh, wow. institutionalized and recovering. So a year after the murder, this guy has a whole nervous has a breakdown. Yeah. Almost as if. But I just find it interesting that they wouldn't interview these people. Yeah. I... Right. And OK, they interviewed Robert Magnan. Yeah. They, inter they didn't talk to his parents like they must have had his parents permission to uh -huh. interview or maybe that wasn't the case in the 70s but um should have children uh, had no rights in the 70s yes. they might not have God. like yeah you could literally like <laughs> say one of these children shouldn't have been taken across state lines for this canoe trip right mm -hmm. that wouldn't have been illegal during this time like no. you it wasn't even illegal to take young male children across state lines mm -mm. without yeah, like taking wherever yeah it was only illegal which we girls. talked about in the last yeah. episode why a majority of children who were sex trafficked back then were boys mm -hmm. because the le legality wasn't there when taking them across state yeah. lines nobody nobody was concerned yeah so you could safety. easily transport them so this this whole thing would support our theory that the person killing shakespeare wasn't doing it for pleasure and that they actually had a horribly difficult time doing it. And that's why he covered his head. They couldn't look at him while they did it. And the guilt over the murder combined with the stress of the ongoing investigation would be plenty enough to put you in an institution with a yeah. nervous breakdown, I would think. And this would also make sense of why the police would pur purposefully botch the investigation. Yeah. Because it's exactly, this is what I was saying earlier, why I could not be a cop. Because if I was investigating a murder and I found out that the victim had been sexually abusing boys and the murderer was the father who found out that it was happening to his son and killed him, I would literally be like, case closed. Ghost um, murder. Yeah. Nope. I don't know where the gun is. No, I don't know where these files are. No, you can't come to my town and film a documentary. Mm -hmm. No, we don't want any. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would just be like, I don't know. No, it's over. And let let these families like have their peace, you know, yeah. because that would... It would be, be a Freddy Krueger thing. It'd be like the monster's dead. Mm -hmm. We don't need to investigate this further. But also, okay, so yeah, say that's the story. Uh huh. Why is Ron Goff still alive and well? Yeah, true. You know, and was allowed to just go to another teaching position, you know, like advance in both the field of education and Boy Scouts. He was still a Boy Scout leader when he was in uh, Edwardsville as well, and he was molesting Boy Scouts during that time. For sure, like not, not just using his position as principal, but also that, but also still mm -hmm. abusing his position as Boy Scout leader. Well, and the thing is, is maybe, you know, 
maybe it was simply that all these kids were always at Shakespeare's house. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, even my, you know, we even asked my dad, we were like, did you ever see anything weird? Or like, did he ever like make any weird advances? And my dad, who would go over there and jump on his trampoline, said, I never even saw the guy. Yeah. We were just allowed to go jump on his trampoline. Which sounds Sweet. like a uh, <laughs> like a home property insurance issue. <laughs> not in the seventies. Maybe not. Um, <laughs> Children had no rights. Lawn darts existed, <laughs> um, but also kind of benevolent. You know, like I know. I've got this thing. I'll jump on it every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'm weird, and I'll do that whenever I like. Here, kids. It's jump almost on this like trampoline. he got it for the kids. Yeah, like just it for the town. Yeah. And like, I mean, why like, would why would this sixty year old man need a trampoline? Oh God, I just I can see him out there hopping. True, yeah, maybe uh, he seemed adventurous. Well, and just he held up better than anybody else in the photos. Like every other picture that we have of suspects during this timeline did not age as well as John Shakespeare did. So no, part, partly just could be jealousy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> motive two point five. <laughs> Motive 2.5, jealousy. Well, we'll move on to motive number three, money. A lot of suspects' motives were money. Stephen, actually, you were going to cover some of his finances. So, Because we had questions about it in the last episode, whether he was actually as rich as, you know, people thought he was. There were rumors that he just had no money. There were rumors that he was broke. Yeah. But we now kind of know better. So much. Yeah, we have uh, forms from the IRS. Um, we have uh, a lot of statements from the estate as it was paying out to his beneficiaries. So yeah. we have we have a decent amount of money or in knowledge about his money. We don't have any money from this. Um, <laughs> but if you want to send us money, <laughs> go to www.patreon.com slash keep it weird podcast. <laughs> Donate to the show. I'm so happy. Um, okay. So after Shakespeare's death, uh, William Wom. Uh, who was listed as a possible suspect last time, and yes. like that probably will figure into this conversation. Yeah, um, he handled Shakespeare's estate, which continued to accrue funds, and it did so for several reasons. The man invested in lots of things. So through the seventies, Shakespeare's income, uh, presumably from the capital uh, that he owned, gained about fifty thousand dollars a year. So between 1980 and 1984, the estate gained $277,000. And this is obviously, you know, five years after his death. Um, so dude was making bank after he was dead. You know, like people are talking about how he made poor money decisions. And he did. And some of these things that I'm going to talk to you about are just Looney Tunes. Yeah. But like a settlement regarding the, his investments in the Progress Foundation, which stick a pin in that, we will come back to the Progress <laughs> Foundation, um, and liquidation of his overseas assets. That mm-hmm. was, you know, like a quarter of a million dollars. So that's an insane amount of money that he still had. Um, or I guess didn't because he was passed by that point. He didn't, however, own his pine home, which is where I what? think this uh, the rumors come from. That That property was part of a land trust. And what so he it? couldn't own the, oh. the property. Well, he just rented? I, so property? I don't think it was a rent situation. I think it was like leased to him. Okay. But could not possibly like end up under his ownership. I see. Okay. Based on the land trust that there was very little information about, but it was listed on his assets that that wasn't one of uh, his assets. He couldn't claim that. Okay. He also, because of this 
trip to Switzerland where, if you recall, he didn't even know if he was coming back. He was like, mm-hmm. maybe I'll come back next well, year. Well, he had a home in Switzerland. Yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe he was just going to like not come back. Mm-hmm. He had a BMW that he had already bought to be his vehicle over there um, and had added like $10,000 worth of features that, according to um, the manufacturer, no German would want on their car. So it made it hard to sell back. Um, so uh, he had spent about thirty thousand dollars. Wow! On this BMW in 1975, um, and the manufacturer was willing to give back about twenty thousand of that and say, like, we'll try and sell this car, but nobody's going to want like a third of the cost of it based on what you did to it. And it was mostly, you know, like making it more like. Um, a car he'd be used to driving in America. Right. Um, but some of it was just, you know, him being rich and wanting, you know, an real, extra cup real holder. fluffy things. Yeah. <laughs> Seat warmers. <laughs> so like there was, there was a payment plan listed for that. And like some of the car was paid for directly from Shakespeare. Some of it was paid for through a company that Shakespeare had interest in. Okay. So like that got very confusing when you were looking at his estate legislation. I mean, uh, it was all confusing to me. Litigation. Yeah. Because I literally sent it to you and I was like, this is your section. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I understand I like, nothing. I'll do the I've numbers. never, ever, ever passed a math class. This is Stevens. <laughs> Which That's is the best thing. Natural. I literally talked to my mom about this yesterday because my dad's dream for me my whole life was oh to God. become a pharmacist. Oh, because, he wanted you to be Casey. Yeah. So he wanted me to be a pharmacist. And this is why. It's air conditioned. Hmm. Bless. God bless him. Yeah. So, but what was funny, he, he continued this dream like all through high school. He wanted me to go, go to college to be a pharmacist. I've never passed a math class. <laughs> it's not happening for me, dad. He just wanted you to know it's... AC. <laughs> he just wanted me to be in air conditioning. Did you go to the junior high? No, I went to like for school. Yeah. Trinity. Yeah. Lutheran. No, I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you were a diet Catholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was Catholic uh, light. Yeah, yes. Did Trinity have air conditioning? Yeah. See, uh, because... we also had bats. <laughs> like in a belfry or like, like everywhere. Not... Okay. Wow. Literally, we would file in the church for chapel and you'd hear a scream and everyone would run like it was a zombie apocalypse because there would be uh... a bat in the pew. Or one time we were playing, uh, I don't know, kickball, volleyball, some sport in the gym that involved a ball mm-hmm. and someone, you know, how gyms have all the banners around like oh, championship yeah. banners. Yeah. And like we were in this, someone threw it up and hit one of the banners and about 50 bats flew out. <laughs> <laughs> And it caused a panic. <laughs> I can't imagine why. So, yes, we had AC, but we also had bats. So well, you win uh, some, you lose yeah, some. What was your secret, I wonder? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I just remember because I didn't go to the junior high until seventh grade. Right. But the sixth grade section of the junior high specifically was not air conditioned. Oof. Like, I didn't attend that part of the school. Couldn't tell you much about it. But did remember that that was like the worst part about Centralia Junior High was that the sixth grade yeah. area was not air conditioned. Well, I remember when I was working at that restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, it was called Bone Trust. It was the best place ever. It's not open anymore. But I was like, it was like 90 degrees, so hot. And my dad and my mom were visiting and they were eating there. And and I uh, I I told that joke. We were we had some guests with us, and I told that joke about the pharmacy. And I was like, he wanted me to be an AC, and I was like, everywhere's AC, Dad. And he was like, not here. And I was like, God damn it! <laughs> he burned me so good. 
You just wanted, oh, you got me good. <laughs> you want a better for you. You son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, anyways. Oh, uh, Back to... Oh, yeah. Back to the finances. <laughs> what sorry, we sorry. talking about. So oh, um, he owned properties and had invested in Monty Soul which is a part of the Prog- uh, Progress Foundation and also considered to be a part of a commune. But when we talk about the condo that he owned, mm-hmm. it was a Montesol condo. Interesting. And the value of it got debated quite a bit. Um, so IRS flagged both the Progress Foundation Foundation and Montesol, mostly because of Montesol, though, um, as suspected tax evaders. And so while Wom was working on Shakespeare's estate, he had to deal with the fact that IRS was in litigation internationally with Monty Soul. Um, and part of the problem was that he had invested $1.2 million. And the investment was such that it was unclear whether it had any value after his death because it was supposed to just go to Monty Soul. Like right. you bought this space and then after you passed, they would just sell it again. So when you say it was the commune stuff, mm-hmm. what were we able to find on Montesol? So okay, I've got, I've got a little bit about uh, the Progress Foundation and a little bit about Montesol, but they were the, the Progress Foundation, which is how it's connected, was established by Colonel Edward C. Harwood. Okay, and he was like guru to Shakespeare. He was a an economist that Shakespeare was very very interested in. Followed what he had to say. Also, possibly one of the reasons why Bernie Gross thought he was a communist, by the way, which will come. Yeah. (laughs) But he basically prophesied the Great Depression in 1928. He published letters saying, like, here's what's happening right now and here's what's going to happen. Yeah. Get your shit together. He he blamed inflationary practices, which probably sounds familiar to anyone who was alive in 2008 he established the american institute for economic research which shows up a lot in shakespeare's writings like it's one thing it's what one of the uh, foundations that he wants to put a lot of money toward he studied switzerland's focus on monetary stability and was a huge fan of the gold standard like very much so wanted all uh, of a nation's money to be backed up by the gold that they had and hated the idea of inflation being used to offset a nation's debt that's basically how he's claiming that any uh, economic downfall happens he funded the progress foundation mostly through do- donations from wealthy americans like shakespeare okay. basically he just had millionaires sending him money to run these foundations and they profited from his investment advice like he would tell them things that they should be investing in and they would tend to do quite well the first of three living economists to have his likeness engraved on a gold piece. That was Colonel uh, Edward C. Harwood. Oh, wow. So, yeah. According to IRS documents, Shakespeare owned an interest in a condo in Lugano, Switzerland, known as the Monte Sol Project. Okay. Um, the investment was such that after his death, it went back to the Progress Foundation, not Shakespeare. IRS relied on litigation to discover if any of his investment was recoverable. And you'll recall that he put a, over a million dollars in and got back about 100000 like his estate was given about a hundred thousand dollars back, and that was figured into the two hundred seventy-seven that uh, went back to his estate in the early eighties, mm-hmm. but only a piece of it. Like he had so many foreign investments. Montesol and the Progress Foundation were under investigation. They either are currently still or were under investigation by the SEC during the investigation, and they were under a restraining order by the U.S. Federal District Court of D.C. In terms of their money handlings. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's very strange that you would buy a living space that when you pass, your estate doesn't still own. 
Yeah. Like that, it just goes back to the group. And, and so that th- that is that his, the, the place that he owned in Switzerland when he said he had a, a place in Switzerland, correct. that's what he was talking and, about. Well, it was being built. And so he was still writing, le- like him talking about owning this place sounds kind of pie in the sky because he was writing letters back and forth to Albert F. Gibson, who was a financial consultant. Mm-hmm. And in January 15th of 1974, so this would have been uh, about a year January, and a half before yeah. he died, Gibson said, look at it very carefully before you put your money in. Uh, the project has been on f- the fire for many years now. They have taken money from lots of people, but the question is, where? what have they done? Some of my clients went there and all they found was a tract of land with a broken down house on it and a caretaker living there. Okay. Um, also, sounds fishy. Uh, yeah, no, it sounds real sketchy. Um, also, Gibson encouraged Shakespeare to write a will, which he didn't fully do. Well, I wonder if that's the tax evasion stuff because they were sending money, you know, and they were able to write it down as property. Yeah, but it was just this like un but developed space. It was actually for dot 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 question yeah. mark question mark question mark. We and don't know what the money was sent for, and maybe Shakespeare knew. That's a good point. That he wasn't sending it for the home. He was sending it for something else. Well, or maybe Shakespeare was being swindled. Was tied back into his like obsession with non-Keynesian economics, mm-hmm. which I remember we explained in the last episode, but have no memory of what that means. <laughs> um, I remember you explained it in the last episode, and I played along like I understood what you were saying, but in reality, I did not. I understand what you were saying. For sure. Also, if you go back and it doesn't actually get explained there, now you know why we don't know still. <laughs> Google to it. Stay. Yeah, like, look at it. Not, Figure it out. There's a weird why in Keynesian. <laughs> that's all I can tell you. Um, but Shakespeare uh, responded and claimed that he was earning 35% on his investment with uh, Monty Soul. So he, he claimed that it was repaid. He was making money. Benefits. Um, And Shakespeare gave Gibson, this uh, financial consultant, power of attorney with regards to specific holdings, but then stopped payments on uh, January of the following year after not hearing from Gibson in over a year. Like Gibson kind of traveled for a while. And so then Shakespeare couldn't keep in contact with him, Um, which is just strange because like this was the person asking him to like have a will, have something planned for your money. Um, and he wasn't in Centralia or anywhere near Centralia. I, I think he might have been out in Colorado. Okay. Um, but weirdly enough, in their exchange, one of the things that Shakespeare asked for was, was concerning someone named Michael Oliver, which I know nothing else about. Um, but Shakespeare asked that this man be given $50,000 anonymously, quote, probably through Cayman Islands. Okay. That's what it says in the letter. Wama mom followed up on that after his death because they're like, because that happened. Like, yeah, they gave the $50,000 to this mystery man. But by the time their letter arrived, Oliver was also out of the country and the correspondence ended there. So the estate never got to follow up on that $50,000 that yeah. just Is went gone. away in a very tax sheltery kind of way. The mm-hmm. fact that all of this takes place in Switzerland. <laughs> yeah. Is also like sketchy. Shady. He yeah. had, I mean, he had money in Switzerland uh, as well. He had nearly $634,000 in a Swiss credit bank. Wow. He had $22,000 in uh, still an Ashland Oil Company. Uh, in his 
deposit box at the bank, he had $17,000 worth of British and U.S. gold coins, which I believe is why this section is also titled Scrooge McDuck. Because <laughs> I, I like to picture him just diving swimming, into it. You know? And then there was a weird mark on his estate that just said $23,500 in gallery sales, which... Galleries. I had to put that in quotation marks. Like art, I'm assuming. He's like selling. But gallery, you can sell anything. He did have eight heirs listed. Mostly siblings and their children. Yeah. And his taxable estate as of 1977 was $2.3 million. He was in no way destitute. No. So that's debunked. Yep. So definitely was not without money. And then is this where we want to talk about? Like all the money that he had hidden throughout his house? Yeah, why not? We're talking about money. So this kind of falls into like Ralph Porter territory, who was the caretaker, only because Ralph Porter helped install a whole bunch of like fake pipes um, and like weird backs to uh, filing cabinets, uh, places to hide uh, money that Shakespeare kept. Mm -hmm. And he kept a lot of large amounts of specific currency. Like he had $500 just in nickels. Like they had a bag of just that, you know, the police. Just in case. I know. They had like, so there were 15 sacks of money that yeah. the police had to take to the bank after uh, they had gone through the investigation because like it was found not to be evidence, but needed to be filed away somewhere. Um, and in those bags was almost $10,000. I believe it was 9,300 something um and just like actual money not even counting the foreign money that he had all throughout his house as well wow and i was just in and most of it was in the basement where his body was found mm-hmm. you know not somewhere where they'd have to go looking right so you murder this millionaire uh-huh and leave all of the money in his house yeah and i mean it was hidden well the police didn't find it ralph porter had to show them every single hiding spot they right. hadn't found a lick of that money. well and that the main problem that i have with the money motive mm-hmm. and the you know he was not tortured nope it would make sense if like three of his fingers were missing and you know he had bruises ab- about his body yeah. about his person because someone was trying to force him to tell them where this stuff was hidden mm-hmm that just wasn't the case. He was just shot execution style. And again, his like his wallet was found with no cash in it. But so sure, there's varying reports they... as to whether or not he ever used cash. Most people said that, or some people said that he only used credit cards and checks. So he wouldn't have cash. But then why does he have so much cash in his home? Um, and I mean, he definitely seemed very... Paranoid, paranoid somehow with all the hidey holes yeah who and had, yeah. you know uh what was that 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 report that a neighbor gave where he like saw shakespeare and got into his car and shakespeare had told him that he couldn't keep some gold in his house oh yeah yeah so like he he was aware that there were people that may come looking for money which i mean when you let people in and out of your house all the time i guess you gotta hide your goods true yeah you you gotta hide the valuables but at the same time there were a ton of valuables not hidden yeah that were not touched just so i mean most of the things he owned were worth more money than most people in centralia had Mm -hmm. i remember gasping when you told me that he had the first microwave in town yeah yeah like that wouldn't have been cheap during that time either. right 
But at the same time, that stuff could be tracked. You wouldn't be able to steal it and sell it. This is the only microwave in Centralia. How do you have it? <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> Listen, where'd you get this microwave? I bought it yeah. with hugs. Yep. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Go ahead. I, honestly, that's where that's the extent of my knowledge on his finances. I can say um, that Porter said that there were drawers upstairs that were open that Shakespeare would have never left open like that. Okay, but nothing was taken out of them. Mm-hmm. He still claims okay. to this day either that nothing was taken, which you know, or that um, a radio and a mace can, which I found out like through reading is not what I thought it was. It's a tear gas canister. He had two. He had one in his kitchen and one in his bedroom. Would you need that for? I couldn't tell you. But like if you're the type to keep a tear gas canister in your home for security purposes, question mark, (laughs) how are you getting tied up and put in your basement? Like, Yeah, you'd think that he would be a little bit. He was like a doomsday prepper mm -hmm. for security. Richard Spray was also interested as to whether or not that yellow cord was ever noticed to be Shakespeare's property. Because the whole, like... The electrical cord? Yeah. The whole quickie tie-up thing yeah. with, like, his clothes and or ripped clothes and all that. It seemed like it came down to that cord as to whether or not they brought that with the intention to tie him up or whether they found that along with the other things that were used to tie him up. Yeah. So that was that was which uh, you know I I I was talking to Andrew Miller. What what Andrew? Yeah. Everyone's heard your name a million times. So <laughs> I was talking to Andrew Miller, and I had said to him, you know, that the electrical cord and the, the shirts being tied up and the 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 items that he was tied up with and the towels wrapped around his head were all seemingly things that they found there. Mm-hmm. So to me, that made me think that it was not planned. That the tying him up and everything wasn't planned. It happened in the moment. Yeah. But he made a good point that they tied him up with a bunch of things from his own house because then they wouldn't be able to be tied to anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if they tied him up with this red rope, then the police would be able to like track down red rope that was bought. Yeah. You know, within 24 hours of the murder or something like that. Also, just so many knots were tied. Like, knots knots. around the towels around his head. Like, Mm -hmm. it makes makes me wonder in what order things went down. Because, like, how do you... Like, this would have taken time. Well, they weren't able to determine. And maybe they weren't able to determine because it was difficult to determine. Or they weren't able to determine because the autopsy sucked balls. Mm -hmm. But they weren't able to determine if he had taken a blow to the head... Or if the the injury gunshot. from his head was from when he got shot mm-hmm. in the head. So my, my favorite part about the autopsy was when they talked about how much feces they found and why that was how they couldn't actually tell if there was an, a, a sexual assault. It's like, really? I'm pretty sure you could just clean that up and also check and see if he was sexually assaulted. Yeah, maybe do both. Maybe do both of these things. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, for anyone who doesn't know, when you die, your bowels are released. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that they are not. So the fact that there is a lot of feces does not mean that. that And he was found closed. Commenting, like they said, it was an exceptional amount, I believe. Um, So, like you know, well fed. (laughs) Yes, he had eaten a meal. But how is that a a a leading feature in your autopsy? I know. Like, a whole lot of poop. It's something that shows up 
on almost every autopsy. That's what we're going to spend our time with. Everything in his body was found to be uh, super normal. They thought that he maybe had like one kidney that was a little sad. And uh, his lungs had, it looked like he might have had a cold. Okay. Those were the things that were wrong with John Shakespeare, other than being murdered. Other than being dead. Yeah. (laughs) So, if I may, one major change since the last episode we recorded on Shakespeare. I actually no longer believe that William Wom was responsible for his murder. Just doesn't seem likely. He did benefit from the estate. Yes. Um, His beneficiaries got about $30,000 on a yearly basis uh, from the estate. And the Wom and Wom, which probably wouldn't just be William Wom. I'm sure the entire firm benefited from that. Mm -hmm. Um, But Wom and Wom received $53,000. So Per year? It, so that was hard to tell. I right. think it was a different uh, amount per year. I think that they billed like the time that they had to spend. I'm sure during the time that they were litigating internationally, that took more time. And so they could bill more. Um, but the only year that I could see Wom and Wom on the list of uh, credits from the estate, they were listed at $53,000. Yeah. So they benefited year. from his death for sure. But... Would that be enough to commit murder? And would they? Would William Wom have actually had? Did he know how much money he had before he died? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I mean, was they, he privy to that information? They seemed to be rich together. Yeah, for sure. Like that seemed to be like one of their connecting mm-hmm. facets. Um, but the extent is hard to say. If he had, like, the printouts. Yeah. And, of... and, like, there are a lot of people, like, Shakespeare did not talk about his personal life very often. Mm-hmm. One one interesting, uh, somebody, I guess when he was asked, like, why he had never settled down and gotten married, he said uh, he didn't know whether it, she would love him for him or his money. And I was like, man, if I were gay in the 70s and rich, that would be the best cover for why I'm yeah. not, you know, like, great line because mm-hmm. he was rich from the day he was born yeah because he is the son of william shakespeare not the writer <laughs> wasn't that his dad's name william, yeah, yeah, absolutely. william shakespeare who fu- who founded the shakespeare rod and reel company mm-hmm. which is like the most well-known fishing company ever yeah fishing people yeah. know that name There was actually a funny, uh, Joe was listening to an interview and I don't remember who with or what show it was on, but it was a podcast. It was either like Mark Maron or it was something like that Mm -hmm. with someone who was talking about going through the Midwest uh, with their Shakespeare company back when they were in college. This was years and years and years ago. This actor was talking about going through the Midwest with a Shakespeare company and laugh like being so confused Every time, like, they would meet locals and the locals would be like, what you doing in town? You know, and they'd be like, I'm with the Shakespeare Company. And they'd be like, and then they would start talking about fishing. Fishing. And they'd be like, what is this leap? (laughs) And then eventually finding out, oh, my God, the rod and reel company that all these people use is called Shakespeare. These people think we're in town to go fishing. (laughs) I'm also just in love with the fact that we hail from the part of the country that associates the word Shakespeare more. With fish. With fishing. Um, <laughs> like, why did I become a, How did I become an English teacher? <laughs> how did I move to Los Angeles? So, we don't think he is responsible for the murder. I learned a lot more about him. And yes, of course, he could have done it or hide, hired someone to do it for this reason or the other. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. But my biggest reasons for believing 
um, that Wham was behind it, Wham, sorry, was behind it, have completely dissolved. My biggest reason was the strangeness surrounding the hitchhiker we all know and love, Quinn Devon. Nobody. I had several people reach out to me to tell me a bit about Wom. And these were people that had spent time with him in his house and knew him and his family. So I trust what they have to say. Like they actually knew the guy. And they said that it would not be strange for him to spend a day with a hitchhiker, especially one as interesting as Quinn Devin. Mm -hmm. And we talked about Quinn in our last episode. He was supposedly an Irish journalist and professor who was making his way across the United States. And that's pretty much all we knew about him in the last episode. We also knew that when police tried to track him down and actually spoke to authorities in Ireland, there were no records of anyone named Quinn Devin. Since then, we got a much more detailed account of events that made the whole situation a little bit more clear. Um So I'm going to go over the day's uh, events again for William Wom, and this is going to sound very familiar to everyone who listened last year, but now we have way more specific information. So Wom was having lunch in Mount Vernon with an attorney named Kurt Lackey, and at a nearby table, a man was eating lunch. He was dressed in hiking shorts, a shirt, tennis shoes, and carrying a backpack, and he was talking to the manager and a couple waitresses and was asking about a job. And Wom noticed that he had an Irish dialect and that piqued his interest because he was like, what's an Irish guy doing in southern Illinois? Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So it piqued his interest. So he interjected and kind of introduced himself. And uh, Devin told Wom that he was hitchhiking across the U.S., that he had come up through Florida and Tennessee. He told Wom that he was a writer, but he was working his way through the U.S. as like a waiter or a chef or like dishwasher or whatever he could find. And the reason Wom offered him a ride to Centralia because was because it had actually begun raining really hard. Oh, okay. So that's why he offered the ride. Well, that's nice. Uh, his intention was to drive the guy to Route 50 at Sandoval once it stopped raining. So in the meantime, since it was still raining, he took him back to his office and just kind of like was like, hey, this guy's going to stick around until it stops raining and I can take him to Sandoval. And that's why he introduced him to like the people at his office. Okay, but then didn't... Quinn Devin then just go for a walk around town? Yeah, I think he went just like to nearby shops. Okay. So like he gave Devin a change of clothes and kind of was like, you know, you can wait here or you can, there's a bunch of nearby shops if you want to pop in, ask for work or something Okay. Uh, while before, like, I guess that was kind of his lunch break. So he was like, I get off at four, do whatever you want, meet me back here and we'll yeah. go to Sandoval. So, um... Once Wom was off work, it was still raining really hard. And he asked uh, Devin if he wanted to just stay the night at his home. And Devin actually said no at first. Oh, really? Yeah, he was like, no, I don't want to put you out. And Wom was like, it's really no big deal. Is this like, we have plenty of space. of the events? Um, this is in two different people's accounts. Wom and... Kurt Lackey? No, I don't think Kurt Lackey was there anymore. I think it was another Wom. Oh, was it Jeanette, his daughter? Uh, it was Jean, okay. yeah. He accepted the invitation uh, after Wom insisted. And in the meantime, Wom called Shakespeare to ask if he wanted to join them for dinner at Pinky's restaurant because he felt that John would enjoy meeting this guy because he's super interesting and John likes interesting people. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense knowing how well-traveled Shakespeare was and living in Centralia. Absolutely no offense to any Centralians. I love Centralia. It's just you would jump at the opportunity to hang out with a guy from Ireland if you're someone who loves culture and world world travel and, you know, 
you've been to Ireland. Even one of Shakespeare's neighbors in his like IBI interview said that that was a thing that Bill Wom did. Like that it was very If there common, was like an interesting guy in town wanted or to connect them person together. in town, he would want to introduce them. So Wom took Devin to his home, allowed him to take a shower, gave him a nice pair of shoes, and then they went to dinner. And at dinner, it was reported that they talked about Africa, economics, politics, and a variety of subjects that they were all interested in. And Quinn Devon said that he had worked in Africa. And Shakespeare said that he had investments in Switzerland and was planning to live and retire there. And Quinn Devon gave John his Swiss telephone number. Apparently, he had a Swiss telephone number as well. Hmm. And told him to stop and see him when he came to Switzerland. But Wom said that neither of them, like they exchanged information, but neither of them wrote down the numbers. Hmm. So I don't know how, I don't know if they had really good memories. Like, I don't know why. Maybe they were planning on exchanging them again later when they had a piece of paper. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe like, they, since they knew that Quindemon was going to go stay at Wom's, that they would just write it Eventually, down. Eventually, yeah, yeah, they would take down the info. So after dinner, they took Shakespeare home. John thanked him as he got out of the car, told Devin he enjoyed meeting him, and then just went into the house. And that was the last time either of them, obviously, Devin, but Wom as well, saw John Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And then Wom and Devin went back to the Wom residence where they sat around with um, Bill Wom and his daughter, Jean, and they watched TV. And Devin quoted literature. He stated that he had worked for the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, mm-hmm. and had done documentary type writing, like journalistic documentary writing. He said that he had written documentary concerning the effect of the Irish Civil War on the children. The Irish Civil War during the Nigerian Civil War. It was like the Irish's point during the Nigerian Civil War. Apparently, they were connected. Okay. He said that he had been married to a black woman who was a teacher in Africa, and she had died. And Devon left Africa very shortly thereafter. And he stated that he had to leave Ireland because of his writing on the Civil War, which had made both sides, Africa and Ireland, mad at him. I don't know. That sounds Hmm. kind of like, really? Okay. Yeah. He said some of his family members had been killed due to the Civil War. So that was like just a testimony of like from Wom and his daughter, female Wom, (laughs) on like what (laughs) was discussed as they watched television. Wom then said he dropped Quinn Devon off in front of the Sandoval High School at 8 a.m. on May 7th, 1975, after giving him $10 and letting him keep the shoes he lent him. And actually, Devin again was like, no, man, like, I don't want to keep these. Like, I no, absolutely not. And and Bill Wom was insisted to take the shoes because his old shoes were pretty ratty. Wom stated he never heard from him again. And the officials claim that no records of him exist under that name in Ireland. Not only that, but they talked to members of the FBI working in Dublin and the Irish consul in Chicago, who also said that they don't think Quinn Devin was his real name or even a real person. The consular checked with his assistant, a man who worked very closely with the local and national media in Dublin prior to his move to Chicago, and he said that he doubted the veracity of his story because he had heard of no such incident like this involving a journalist in Dublin. So... And I don't, did you also contact the BBC? Yeah. 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 I talked to the BBC about it and I, they have no record. I, yeah. I, I sent like communication back and forth. They're like... 
you know when you go to like pay your phone bill or whatever and they're like hey do you want to just chat with us right there it was yeah. basically that function <laughs> on bbc and that person like walked me through the whole process and yeah, awesome. absolutely could not find a single thing i know about this human um but possibly and yeah. I just don't think this person is using his real name. Like that seems even if that is his real story, he it does not seem like he was using his real name. But it is quite possible for somebody to work for the BBC and not have anything produced under the BBC's title. Yeah. And to even be sent on assignments that don't actually get, you know, used. Well, because I had asked about the document after they said we don't have any record of that person. I asked about the documentary specifically. I was like, do you have record of a documentary about the Nigerian or the Irish Civil War uh, around this time? Around like maybe like 1965 or 1960 to 1975. Mm. Like in that area. In that time frame. And they said no. But they did say that like that doesn't mean there wasn't one because a lot of records from back then just were lost and or not digitized or yet. not digitized or it wasn't a bbc production just something that the bbc had like contracted or to be bought done out. yeah or bought Possibly. out yeah um but yeah according to the bbc they have no record of anyone named quinn devon but i also reached out to um the Fremantle media who also operated out of the uk and because they produced four programs on the Nigerian Civil War in the years uh, 1968 to 1971. Okay. But they, too, have no record of Quinn Devon working on any of the programs. And they also had no record of an Irish person working, an Irish man, working as a journalist for them. Because um, the journalists that did these documentaries all were the on-camera journalists as well it wasn't like there were writers like documentary writers right yeah so and they didn't have any irish ones none of them were irish so couch squeak i'm really sorry (laughs) it's very unlikely but not impossible that the documentary and the bb stuff stuff was total bullshit Mm -hmm. especially knowing that irish officials looked into him as well and couldn't find anyone with that name or that backstory like it was a specific backstory they would be able to anyways so all the stuff about living in Africa and documenting the Civil War, all that, sure, it could have been bullshit, but it definitely seems like Wam and Shakespeare were convinced, at least, that he was being honest with them about who he was and that he wasn't a crazy person. Because mm-hmm. they did stay throughout dinner. Wam did let him stay in his home with his young daughter, his wife. It doesn't seem like they thought anything was fishy about Quint- Quinn Devon. Yeah. Although I still, like, and I get it, Will Wam does sound nice. <laughs> but that sounds strange. It does sound strange. But also, you know, I talked to people um, about that time and it was just kind of like, you know, I even talked to, uh, I think, Richard Sprave and said, I hitchhiked every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a hitchhiker did not automatically mean murderer, f- murderer yeah. or fishy person or suspect or or vagrant or deviant. Like hitchhiker was literally, it could be everyone hitchhiked yeah so it wasn't strange to like invite a hitchhiker in for coffee or invite a hitchhiker you know what i mean it was just like they were just people most of the time interesting people so either way the fact that a handful of people came forward who actually knew and spent time with wom for them to say like no totally sounds like something he'd do give the clothes off his back to an interesting homeless guy takes him off the top of my list he's still on the list Mm. 
as like a mysterious suspect person. But he is, uh, he's been bumped down a few pegs. And it seems like um, we had record of him being uncooperative last time with yeah. police, which doesn't seem to be reflected no. in the IBI papers at all. Mm-mm. Um, So at least a year after the investigation, he was not withholding. Um, But we also don't have any record of him being withholding during the initial investigation. So it seems like an unfair characterization that we yeah. can't support any longer. I mean, it could simply be one of those things where eventually he was like, I'm done talking about it. Yeah. I gave you everything I know. I don't know anything about Quinn Devin. Yeah. Please stop making me go through this story. over. Please. And over again. He even like, it seemed like he wanted them to look further into Quinn Devin, you know, like yeah. he gave them all the information he possibly could about this person that he had spent time with. He was the one who initiated the conversation uh, with the IBI, at least like he, when he knew that they were uh, opening up the investigation again, he contacted them. They didn't even have to call him to really? talk about. All right. And I mean, he may have been returning a call. I don't, you know, like True. they didn't t- say what happened before that point, but he contacted and there was like a full telephone interview done immediately then um, with information that he wanted to give them about Quinn Devin. I do find it interesting because there are, we now have the police sketches, mm. the, what's that called? Yeah, the artist rendering. Artist rendering of like what uh, this Quinn Devin looked like. Oh my God. And so I bad. do find it interesting that William Wom's description of the guy differs so much from his daughter. Yeah. Who I mean, like, they William sat Wom in the same. Spent more time true. With him, true. But. Still, but it's they were just re- really different, like down to like the weight was different. I I thought that was weird. Yeah, possible age, height was different, age was different, weight was different, and like you said, like sure, it could have been that she didn't spend enough time with him, didn't look him over. Maybe Wom was constantly bringing people home, and Jean was just like, oh god, another one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seemed like Who everybody cares? could agree on his beard. Yes. But it seemed like every beard that they drew looked real messy. And the description of his beard is like short and cleaned up, not wild looking. Yeah. But every but artist every rendering. Is like scraggly. Bushman. You know, like he lo- and maybe that was just like, well, he was a hitchhiker. So probably got a little windswept every once in a while. <laughs> but, you know, like I just cannot. I'm going through like 800 pages of documents right now trying to find a picture that the artist drew because there were so many. Um, There are even people who did artist renderings that I didn't see their name anywhere else in the investigation. But uh, William Wom, and they're in different places. Like William Wom's uh, drawing is with Jeans, but then Jeans is in another stack with two other names that I mean, I recognize because I'm from Centralia, right? But I did not recognize but it they as like in the... people. And it who could were have just been stuff like the waitress at Pinky's. Mm-hmm. You know, people yeah. that they know came in contact with him. That's a great point. That could potentially could have seen give him, a description give an of the guy. Yeah, and because it was Tony Cunningham himself who said that he walked around with Quinn Devon, right? Yeah, it's, uh, the guy TC or Tony Cunningham said that he kind of like ran into Quinn Devin in town and they kind of like shot the shit and smoked Quinn a joint smoked a joint, which it was the seventies, like everyone smoked joints. Like yeah. that's not a big deal. Um and like Quinn Devin like showed him some karate or something. Yeah, like uh showed him how he could 
take a gun gun away from an armed man. Yeah. With a bandana, I believe was specifically yeah. the the martial arts he demonstrated. Uh-huh. Which was interesting, you know. Didn't this poor guy, this poor Quinn Devon, like if he had nothing to do with the Shakespeare murder, it's just sad because it's like how inconvenient <laughs> to show up the day before a murder and leave the day of and or after, depending on the timeline, a murder. Well, he went, he <sighs> hid real quick. Like he got himself disappeared. Oh, no one's ever, ever heard from or saw Quinn Devon again. So, I mean, if he could smell what was coming he managed to get away from it real quick oh yeah janice mashoff was another person who provided information for a uh an artist rendering and my note next to her name is hoomst like not (laughs) once not once have i heard your name in this um sheila jolliffe oh yeah jolliffe oh she Mm, didn't say when she saw him but uh, she describes him as 6'1 or 6'2, medium build, strawberry blonde hair, thin, green eyes. Um, and his hair looks very kempt in this, like uh-huh. very, like combed back. Well, I wonder, the thing is, oh, wait, no, never mind. I was and thinking. could it be the other hitchhiker? Yeah, but I was also thinking that, uh, you know, this could have been at dinner. Mm, when he got After he up. showered, brushed his hair back, yeah, didn't look crazy. Janice. But Janice has like a full on fro. Yeah, like. And it is unkempt. Wild. And then the hair. dinner, you know, or th- after dinner, you know, his hair got a little fluffier. You know, it's it been dried. A long day. Yeah, it dried. I don't know, man. None of these look like the same people to me. They just don't. Well, and the beards are all different. And then also there's like words written in this beard. Who's writing words, like, is messages inside of this person's beard? Oh, God, there are words in that beard. Yeah, I, like, I've been weirdly obsessed with these artist renderings, which are never great as pieces of evidence. You know, like, they're not generally very helpful to an investigation. No, not at all, because witness, yeah, witness testimony is is just shit, as is (laughs) hair as is fingerprints, as is handwriting. Oh like unless you have semen, yeah, you're not solving. You the crime. you need something that came out of that person's body. If, if out you're of the going inside to, of that person, and convince body. me, you know, like I can't even watch for I heckle forensic files now. I'm like probably didn't do it. You just <laughs> you just stared at two pictures and decided they were the same. Yeah, not an actual nope. conviction. Yeah, no, I, uh, this case has changed me and how I uh, process and consume and consume murder. (laughs) But this kind of leads us after, you know, we've talked about money and we've talked about like the potential like William Wom, you know, connection, Mm -hmm. maybe. But then now we have like kind of a list of experts that could have committed this crime. And there were many leads that we followed that suggested this was a professional job of some kind. And we each have two to chat about, I think, today. Yeah. One case that I really wanted to talk about came about in the form of a letter to the Centralia Police Department with an attention to Chief Kermit Justice from the sheriff of Jersey County in Jerseyville, Illinois. I can't believe how many podunk words just came out of my mouth. I can't believe she- how many letters Jerseyville sent Centralia. Yeah. I mean, there's like, uh, yeah. I know. It was crazy. Jerseyville, Illinois, Kermit Justice. <laughs> wow. So 
this letter was sent May 11th, 1977. So this is two years almost to the day from the day that John was murdered. And to summarize, it basically reads, in April of 1975, so this is a month or less before the Shakespeare murder, uh, and it, it took place an hour and 45 minutes away. That's where this Jerseyville County is. In April of 1975, I investigated a homicide robbery that occurred in rural Jersey County. The victim was an elderly man, lived alone, and had been badly beaten. He died from asphyxiation from a gag that was placed in his mouth. His hands and feet were bound with electrical cords and scraps of fabric. After the victim was beaten, but before he was tied up, his killers forced him to open a safe in his home. Approximately nine or eight hundred to nine hundred dollars were taken from the safe. Nothing else in the residence appeared to be ransacked. Several valuables were untouched. Mm. This sounds exactly yeah. like the murder. So the three men responsible for this crime in August of 1975, one of these guys, uh, pretty sure it was Robert Cash, actually, came forward and gave a statement. The three men were Francis L. Sheridan, David Folks, and Robert Cash. Folks and Cash both pled guilty to murder and both turned state's evidence against Francis Sheridan, who was, quote, the leader of the group, supposedly. Or, yeah, as that would be convenient for the other two to say. Yes, exactly. He was found guilty by jury and received 70 to 210 years. Okay. Folks and Cash both received lesser terms for their testimony against Sheridan. All three are now serving at Menard. Menard was a uh, Southern Illinois State Prison. And that was, um, th- this is still according to the letter. So okay. I, I don't know as of this point where they are. I couldn't find any information because I don't think Cash and Folks would be, they probably are out of prison by now. Yeah. Sheridan's probably still there. But folks in cash are probably out, and I don't know where they are. Um, but the letter goes on to say that during the time period of March, April, and May of 1975, these three were involved in several home invasion armed robberies in Madison, Jersey, and Macoupin counties. Madison counties where you live, isn't it? Are you yeah. in Madison County? No, I'm St. Clair, but oh, okay. I was in Madison when I was up in Edwardsville. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's very close. All of Sheridan's victims were older people, mostly males. And almost all of them were bound with electrical cord. Mm. So. Seems like a weird. He's like the wet bandits. I want to say that ligation (laughs) or something, but it's a weird thing to use. Mm -hmm. Repeatedly. Yeah. Like, I guess everybody's got that. But like, how do you know where people keep their cord? Like, are you just like starting in the garage and then invading their home once you've gotten all the stuff? I get tying someone up with a cord, like an electrical cord or a phone cord, because they are, you cannot break them. Mm-hmm. And they don't seem to be something that come untied easily if you've got a good knot in them. So yeah. I get why someone would use that. But yeah, is he is he bringing his own? Because remember, they said the cord was the only thing that they kind of thought maybe wasn't at John Shakespeare's house. Or at least the only thing that they didn't get identified as something that he definitely had yeah. which would be understandable because who's like walking around taking stock of someone else's power cords yeah you know exactly so maybe he goes on to say it may be of interest to you that robert cash is redheaded mm. and does speak with a notable accent kind of accent that's the thing he did not say what kind of accent i know we also get like <laughs> 
this person spoke regular English. Yeah, regular English. One person said English, like, I, I guess, like, British, Irish, and this just says noticeable accent. Yeah. So, I don't know. Cash, however, may have been in custody during the time of your homicide, but I have no record on this. The other two, Sheridan and Folks, were both on the streets during the time of your homicide. So, here's what I'm thinking. If, if these three were involved. Mm -hmm. If you all remember, and if not, like I said, go back and re-listen to Shake It Up and get all the deets. But there were two hitchhikers in Centralia around the time of the murder, supposedly. Yeah. There was Quinn Devon, redhead, Irish tall, who was brought to town on May 6th from Mount Vernon by William Wom. He then had dinner with Shakespeare, stayed the night at Wom's, was dropped off in Sandoval, Illinois, the next morning, May 7th at approximately 8 a.m. Now, there was a second hitchhiker in town, and according to an interview with a man named Harry L. Wright on May 10th, 1975, he stated that on May 7th, he picked up a hitchhiker in Sandoval at 9.35 a.m., just south of the B&O tracks near, uh, near Sand and Gravel Place. But I looked this up. The first hitchhiker, quote, Quinn Devon, was dropped off at 8 a.m., 0.5 miles away from where the second hitchhiker was picked up at 9.35 a.m. Yeah. So hitchhiker one... Devin was described in so many ways. Tall, short, young, old. Even Wom and his daughter couldn't get it straight. She said he was probably 30 to 35 with reddish blonde hair. He said 36 with sandy red hair. You know, 5'10", 180 pounds. But other people in town said he was skinnier and taller. So yeah. who the fuck knows? Yeah. Hitchhiker number two was described as being about 130 to 140 pounds. Light brown, reddish, ear-length hair. But he spoke normal English. Mm -hmm. That was the quote that we pulled that from. So aside from the hair and the timing and the location, there's not too much to write home about. But Harry Wright had a conversation with the kid on the way back to Centralia. Yeah. So the hitchhiker first asked if he was going to Centralia and Mr. Wright said yes. And the hitchhiker said he'd been on the road for six days and was coming from Iowa. Now, according to Mr. Wright, the only thing he was holding was a small package about 12 inches long and five to six inches wide. And it was wrapped in paper. Mr. Wright took the hitchhiker to Lee's drugstore and the hitchhiker reached into his pocket and came out with a piece of paper and asked Mr. Wright where 514 South Pine in Centralia was. Mr. Wright asked who the hitchhiker was looking for and supposedly the hitchhiker said he didn't know the name of the individual who lived at that address. Mr. Wright provided directions to the South Pine address, which was Shakespeare's address. Mm -hmm. And the hitchhiker said he was going to call the house on Pine, making it seem like he also had the phone number. Devin was with Wom when they dropped Shakespeare off the night before. He spent most of the evening with Shakespeare. He knew Shakespeare had a place in Switzerland and a place in Florida. He probably knew a lot more about Shakespeare that would point to him being fairly wealthy. Yeah. And he had plenty of time to memorize the address as they were saying goodbyes. And Shakespeare was walking into the house. Mm -hmm. Just a hunch. What if these two hitchhikers were the same hitchhiker? Yeah. Like, no, there's there's no real, there's no artist rendering of the second hitchhiker. He never explained what he was wearing. And there's no way to know whether Quinn Devon's accent was, was any real. more authentic than his credentials. Yeah. You know? So it's probably a stretch, 
But it is a theory I have. If it was Cash, the redheaded murderer slash thief who spoke with an accent, what if this was how they got to their victims? How they like cased the joint before Yeah, because... There's no testimony I can find on whether or not their victims, uh, like who lived through the robbery, because some of them did live. But what if they like went through towns disguising themselves as interesting people, like harmless people, mm-hmm. got to know the people, found out who the wealthy ones were, came up with an elaborate backstories like working for the BBC, really not a hitchhiker at all, but actually working with two other men who he called once he was back in Centralia. Like, he didn't call Shakespeare when he said he was going to call the house. He actually called Folks and Sheridan, Mm. saying, now I have an address. Let's do this. Let's do this. I'm heading over there now. Yeah. And he knew where the house was. He was there the night before. Shakespeare's body was found on the 7th, like that night, right? Or was it the 8th? Um, I think, I thought it was the 8th. So they go back, yeah, because... Because the, his date of death, what they say, is the 8th. Yeah, because that's when they found him. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the autopsy basically said that he was prob- he probably died either earlier that day or late the previous night. Mm-hmm. Right? The 7th. Yeah. I did. So the IBI had a different theory about the second hitchhiker. Because they tried to connect uh, that hitchhiker to David Wade and Hatley. Yeah. And there wasn't like... A lot of great information to be found there. No, but there was a gun understand. connection. Yeah, and so the gun in the back of the cab or whatever the fuck. Exactly, because that was his, weird. It was so weird. His um, how did this work? His cousin was driving that cab, Hatley's cousin. So when that gun was left in the back of the cab, Hatley's cousin's thought was, "Well, I should sell it. You know, yeah. random gun in the back of my car." I'm going to try and make money off of it. Right. Why and not? definitely like not worry about whether or not it's been connected to an illicit activity. So <laughs> immediately calls Hatley. Right. You know, um, and that happens before this hitchhiker is picked up. So if the question is, what was in that package that was sitting in the hitchhiker's lap? Could it have been a wrapped up gun that like was put in a box so that you didn't know that he was sitting there with a gun? Yeah. And, and then, you know, because if you're sitting there with a gun in your lap and you're like, who lives at this house? Maybe that person's <laughs> less likely to tell you. Maybe that person's less likely to take you to that house. Yeah, like uh, that feels that feels like an accomplice at that point. That's literally my next note. The, it's weird. The p- path that the police notes on hitchhiker number two went. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, with no reason as to why Hitchhiker Number Two starts to be referred to as David Hatley, um, you know, he which is, was the, and he's, he's referred to as Hatley from that point on. Yeah, and it supposedly he supposedly also arrived in Centralia the morning of May seventh, but it literally is like supposedly. Yeah, like they don't know if that's actually when he arrived or that he's actually the guy that. Well, and he was like this guy picked up and doing a bike ride to Vegas. And like yeah. had plans like he he had an established timeline that was very different and doesn't seem to line up with like on my way to murder this one specific yeah. dude. Um and they also And also if he was coming from Iowa, why would he be going to Vegas? Yeah. And none that, of that would be sense. a backtrack. Why would he go to Illinois to get to Vegas? Unless he unless he was coming to specifically to get a gun. Yeah, like hey, which I heard, okay. I heard you got a gun. I heard you found a gun in your cab. So, and I believe that gun was one of the guns that was quote you know lost or sold or went missing. It's also one put, of the only ones that we have a picture of. 
Yeah, we have a picture of that gun. It's a little revolver. And it was supposedly lost, sold, or missing, or whatever, while in possession of the Centralia Police Department. So that whole thing seems fishy. Like, start to finish, that whole hitchhiker number two seems strange. Yeah. Especially Uh, since we lose track completely of Quinn Devon after he's dropped off in Sandoval. mm -hmm. The only thing we have after that is uh, testimony that he was seen in... O'Fallon. O'Fallon and then St. Louis. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is like... Who on whose authority? And based on which account of what he looked like? I know, yeah. Come on, because every single like uh, that poor artist who had to draw like <laughs> All seven those different scraggly <laughs> like Will Wom's. I I told you this already, but the, the eyes on Will Wom's artist sketch look like two buttholes. Like I don't know <laughs> that man. William Wams went last, and that guy was that was his protest. I'm gonna screw this guy up. Buttholes for eyes on this one. I am sick of this shit. It's just it's it's so bad, and none of these people look like bright-eyed, bushy-tailed young journalists. No, going across again like this had seen this man had seen some things or had yeah. because his eyes were buttholes. But the thing is, too, is like, I just maybe I mean, it was the 70s. So maybe there are just that many goddamn hitchhikers. Mm -hmm. But it's like it's just weird to me that hitchhiker number one is dropped off at 8 a.m. And then half a mile away from that, another hitchhiker with red hair is picked up at 930 a.m. In Sandoval, Sandoval, which which is listeners, if you're not from our town, even smaller than Centralia, not a hub. No, not a hub. Not a place where you get dropped off in transit. Yeah. And definitely not a place that like people would want to be if they were hitchhiking to a specific destination. Like No. I would think you'd rather be in Centralia where there's more people for driving sure. by. In railroads pick you, you up. could like hop on. Yeah, because the only railroad there, it wasn't like a transportation it was like a it was like coal yeah. trains. Which I mean, like, okay, easy to sneak on and off. I was going to say, yeah, you could hop it. on, I guess. But like, that was also true of several of the rails in Centralia. Yeah, and just weird. definitely better destinations. I, yeah, no, it's the the fact that both of these things happen in Sandoval between an hour and a half of one another is incredibly suspect. It seems strange, and my thought is too is like, say it is Cash, say he grew out this beard, put on this Irish dialect came up with this elaborate crazy backstory because his backstory is kind of nutso mm-hmm. came up with this backstory memorized the address of a, an extremely wealthy man for the area gets to sandoval at 8 a.m finds a place to shave his beard mm. becomes a new person yeah if you're beardless and you drop the accent you're going to take years off of your life, so people are going to think you're much younger. You're also, you might even look like you weigh less. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, if it's just like witness testimony. And he had light brown, like the and then hair you hitch- dye. Yeah, you hitchhike right on back to where you came from, and you've got this address mysteriously. Yeah. That you want to go to this guy's place. I don't know. Not two hitchhikers is a very interesting theory. I I don't think there to me. I don't think there were two hitchhikers, and I don't understand where they came up with fucking Hatley. Yeah, because that that connection maybe the, isn't drawn. Yeah, anywhere. maybe the Centralia Police Department had more notes on that connection, and the IBI just kind of was like, 
here's the first testimony, and this was David Hatley. Yeah. Maybe. Which they didn't talk to Hatley. No. no I mean, they had no first, middle, last name, date of birth. They had all the information that they needed on mm-hmm. Hatley and didn't follow up with him about this. Well, like I said, they didn't follow up with this guy. And the story about where he got the gun is just nuts. And then also the gun goes missing. It almost seems like, uh, man, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck the whole Hatley thing was about. Yeah. Anyways. Well, I don't remember Wright ever stating that he knew the name of the hitchhiker. No. He called him the kid. Yeah. So the only person to actually speak with him didn't offer that name. They're making connections based on information that we just can't see. Uh, probably just a part of the initial investigation, but can't see. But that one that one was a very strange one. It was. What do you have uh, in terms of experts? So, my experts... I have seem... one other expert, but I figured we'd go me, you, me. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, my experts don't seem to be that great at it. <laughs> and are also technically pirates. <laughs> Yeah, we have a pirate angle so in got, 2019. Yep, that's that's <laughs> where we've gotten. Um, I've got Mark E. Maynard, 27, of Lewiston, Idaho. Carrie D. Bryant, 25, of Los Angeles, California. And Michael R. Melton, 24, of Bakersfield, California. And the reason these three come up at all whatsoever is because the city editor of the Centralia Sentinel, a year after the murder, sent a letter to a Mary Shakespeare in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who I have to assume must be like Shakespeare's very elderly mother. I don't know because I thought he was buried with his parents. I I know that his dad was definitely buried before he well, cause was. Because the thing is, they could his parents could be like my parents, where like my parents. There's just already plots. Headstones are already there. Yeah. Because my mom sent me the photo one day. And I was like, you are a sociopath. That's Christmas Carol crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. You are a sociopath. (laughs) She was like, now you don't have to pay for anything. And I was like. That's money in the bank You missed an opportunity because you could have said, let's go ghost hunting the next time you're home. Taking me (gasps) to this cemetery. Oh, my God. Allowed me to stumble upon the headstones of my parents. You missed your opportunity, Mom. What you just a sent me a, a text. <laughs> Anyways, go on. So it oh. might his mom might have been alive at the time of his death and just had her plot. Yes, oh, or it could be the wife of a brother. But um, 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 Mary Shakespeare isn't even listed in his beneficiaries. Like uh, this mm. isn't this isn't a name that I saw as the like main Shakespeare clan based on that file. So I mean, like it's either. His mom, or it's the wife of one of his brothers. Okay. But also be weird to send his sister-in-law this letter. Um, But there was a paragraph in the letter that listed these three names and asked if uh, she had ever heard them before. And then asked if John Shakespeare knew anybody that had a yacht either in California or in Hawaii. That'll make more sense in a moment. <laughs> um, California, kind of likely. We have d- plenty of evidence that he's been to California. Yeah, and- we have a lot of scans of like membership cards, like Warner Brothers Studios membership, Knott's Berry Farm, which is in Southern California. Um, like he had a pass, like season pass for that. He went to a Padres Giants game. Mm-hmm. Um. 
we also Odyssey have, Club, like, yeah. We, we had a, uh, a letter exchange where he, someone claimed that he had kind of toyed around with the idea of buying an undeveloped island in the Caribbean. Oh. So, so like, that's a vague connection. Like, that doesn't automatically connect any of this True. to him. But could be important um so that letter was sent in january 1976 so actually only like seven months after his murder and uh, three men who were named uh, that's maynard brian and melton were found guilty of kidnapping a crew from a one hundred fifty thousand dollar yacht named the kamali and setting her adrift or sorry no setting her crew adrift 140 miles off of hawaii in wow. august 1971 the crew was only four people because it was like, you know, not a ship, but a yacht. But they, oh, they're also charged with robbery, assault with intent to murder, and interstate transportation of stolen goods. Um, they forced the three crew members aboard onto, uh, sorry, there were only three. Take it back. Three crew not members. Not even four. Not even four. Uh, onto a rubber dinghy and set them out to sea. Uh but don't worry, the crew members were found only five hours later by a passing ship. So, like, not not worst case scenario. This no. is not an unbroken situation. Um, they The men were captured the very next day when the Coast Guard spotted the yacht headed for the South Seas, which I'm sure <laughs> means something in nautical terms. <laughs> um, Mel- They're looking for the Black Pearl. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, the South Seas. Literally, unless you are referencing the Pirates of the Caribbean ride or movie, I know nothing of the sea. For sure. Yeah. No, I, I'm like... Uh, uh, Michael in Arrested Development when he wanted to go into uh, it's not nautical law what was it called I don't remember it was like yeah but he had just like been in a production of Peter Pan Melton <laughs> <laughs> like, um, Bryant and Maynard were found to be legally insane by a court oh. psychologist and sent to Springfield Missouri that seems n- uh, insane yeah. yeah that's okay so after a two-month examination doctors in springfield ruled them sane and sent them back to stand trial they were like good try you know yeah. like we get it <laughs> we but commend no. your attempt uh, melton was given five years probation while maynard and bryant were sentenced to 10 years in prison so they would have been serving that term during that time but it seems like melton was the actual like interest in this pursuit right okay Uh, now here's the downside to this beautiful story about pirates we have no connection (laughs) between them and shakespeare Uh, the closest they seem to have gotten was springfield missouri which let me tell you is at least five hours away from here Mm -hmm. so they sure were near ish they were in a state that touched our state and we're in an asylum for two months and deemed like not actually needing to be in an asylum yeah and they were pirates. They were, in fact, pirates. But in no way, like, this city editor asking about them also asked about the possible connection that they would have had to have had in the same process. So unless Shakespeare was involved in the yachting game in California in a way that we have no evidence of, or um, this is somehow related to the, I think, it was an island in the Bahamas that was just undeveloped at the time um, that he wants to own by himself. Um, I just can't see how it possibly connects. Me neither. I didn't understand the pirate thing. 
But there, like, there's literally a whole file, and there's so many different newspapers that ran stories on him, and all the stories are so different. Um, in some, the yacht is worth twice as much as uh, I stated. In some, they were further or nearer to Hawaii. Um, the ship that saved the crewmen is delivering anything from oil to Italian goods. Um, like every story is different in these newspapers, which just shocked me that there were so many like inconsistencies in this one story yeah like this this journalistic pursuit was not well conducted across the also country. i wonder if these guys committed any other cr- like did they just steal a yacht so it seems uh, they um definitely stripped the crew almost naked oh and either so yeah well one one other charges definitely indicated that they had uh, assault with intent to murder i believe was just setting them adrift Right. Um, like that was them saying, you know, they easily could have died. Or die. Um, but they, the men were actually like assaulted in one way or another in the process too, of being like stripped and put out in the dinghy. Um, and they were going to just be thrown into the ocean, but one of them, uh, begged until they finally agreed to set out the dinghy for them. Wow. So yeah, these guys were super not nice, like very classic piratey. But uh, probably did not kill John Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one where I'm like, we could cross that off the list. I I mean, there's a couple that we can, but pirates, we absolutely, I think, can. I started texting you. I was just like, pirates? Pirates? What happened? What is going on with this case? This is just like the first episode where I was like, Gacy? Yeah. Gacy? Yeah. The Gacy? The fact that we don't have the original investigation to get Mr. that Gacy? interview, I want that interview. I, w- <laughs> I just Gacy? like I don't I don't even mm-hmm. care how it went. I, I don't want... even care if it was like there's no possible way. I just want to read it. Yeah, I want I want them to walk up uh, and say like who is John Shakespeare? Gacy to say like who the fuck, and that be the end of it. But I just <laughs> want like that <laughs> I interview. Just want it. So another spe- suspect that we had was a man named David Gaddy. Who was known very well by Centralia PD. He was in trouble a lot. He also lived right around the corner, I believe, from Shakespeare. Well, on May 13th, 1975, a man named David Gooden told Centralia PD that he had returned a 22 caliber rifle to David Gaddy on May 7th, 1975, which would have been the day of the murder or not depending on what day he was murdered Mm -hmm. i'm positive i'm almost positive it was the night before not the morning of the eighth but who knows gaddy lived one and a half blocks away from shakespeare um although the motive would be a big question mark but fast forward to september 23rd 1982 david gaddy was shot to death by police in san diego california He was freaking out in a hospital because he was in pain. He was going through drug withdrawals and his doctor wasn't there. This kid was, uh, I believe heroin was his drug of choice, but he was, he was an addict. So another doctor there said he would not give him the drugs, uh, probably something like Narcan, but that he needed to admit him to stay at the hospital as his treatment. Gaddy left, came back an hour later and demanded meds for the pain he was in and threatened that he had a gun in his car and razor blades and that he would shoot himself or slit his throat if he didn't get the meds he was asking for. The doctor, of course, was like, no, and called hospital security and the police. And eventually the cops got there and cornered him in an emergency room. uh, And he pulled a gun out 
and threatened to shoot the cops, pointed the gun at the cops, and was obviously shot down. So when this happened, Centralia PD started interviewing his friends and family to see if anyone would admit that he killed Shakespeare because he was on their suspect list or if he was involved in any way. And he had a friend that they interviewed named Dennis Klinger, who said that about a week before Gaddy was shot, Klinger was in Gladdy's apartment when he noticed that the landlord's dogs were out in the yard and he made a comment to Gaddy about it. And apparently Gaddy misunderstood and thought he heard him say cops were in the yard and he started freaking out, which like, here's the thing. He's on drugs. It's not a surprise that he would freak out, but he went to his closet and got two guns and just Klinger, like, just like, in case, just in case it was the cops, just in case one gun wasn't going to solve your problem. <laughs> so he got two guns and Klinger said that Gaddy was strung out on dope and mentioned that the uh, Gaddy mentioned that the cops were looking for him for a seven year old murder that happened in Centralia, Illinois. Police interviewed his wife as well. And according to her, she and David had discussed the Shakespeare murder in the past And when she asked David directly if he murdered John Shakespeare, his response was, I wouldn't tell that to anyone. That is grounds for a divorce. (laughs) In and of itself. Like, you can't just. She also was on dope, but. Please tell me no. (laughs) You know, like, I I honestly could care less if you did it, if you just let me sleep tonight by saying, no, I didn't. Apparently, it had had been a a common thing brought up in his life. Mm In December of that year, they actually had her hypnotized and interviewed her that way to see if they could retrieve any more information, but it wasn't really successful. She didn't really have any more info. Also, you can't use that in court. Uh, Any testimony given through a hypnotist is inadmissible. Oh, really? Well, because it could be influenced, Yeah, that's also why most states won't allow uh, polygraph. Like, not that same reason, but uh, polygraph. uh, But even the guy who invented the polygraph and also invented Wonder Woman. uh, (laughs) said like you probably shouldn't use this for court cases yeah yeah and they also i mean it's also the good touch bad touch dolls oh really can you use those it's a it's it's not great you have to be like specifically trained in the dolls Mm -hmm. and like i've seen maybe this is just a law and order like where they have to basically recreate that whole interaction like in court to actually use it right like yeah, something like that. Because what what happens is, is children respond to stimuli. Mm-hmm. So if you ask, this is why like so many parents, um, I don't remember what town it was in or what year it was. There was like an enormous bust for child molestation uh, of these parents and they were innocent. But the but they were charged, yeah. Because what happened was they put this doll in front of these kids. They said, "Where'd your parents touch you?" They pointed to the head, and the doctors were like, "Hmm, anywhere else?" And the kids would like point to the feet, and they'd be like, "Okay, anywhere else?" And the kids would point to like the crotch, and they'd be like, "Oh, really? Yeah, that's where they touch you. What did they touch you? What what were they doing when they?" It's like the kids responded to that stimuli. They're like, "Oh, they're interested. Oh, okay." Yeah. I'm getting yeah, attention me, from an adult. Yeah, let me continue this line of storytelling Jeez. on my end. So you have to be like very specifically trained in the dolls, the touch touchy dolls. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Makes so sense. Gladdy, maybe. Yeah, I mean. But motive is like, I don't know. Yeah, why would he? He also like, again, and this is something that 
I think Richard Spray uh, said multiple times in his notes is that this doesn't seem like something a single individual could have or would have done. Like it doesn't seem like it, it seems like it's probably at least a couple of people. Yeah. Who would have had to come in and commit this murder. Not the least uh, for any other reason than uh, Shakespeare was not weak. He was not. No, he's in very good shape. And unless you just go by Ron Goff's weird statement that he might put cuffs on to prove a point. Yeah. Or, you know, you have a gun pointed at a guy and you say, you know, do what I tell you and you won't die. Who knows? But yeah, uh, he obviously he was, you know, on drugs. So the motive to me seems like money of some kind so he could buy drugs. But what money did he take? That would actually be a good case for just taking money out of a wallet. Yeah. Because he's not thinking of a huge robbery. He's yeah. just thinking about, I know this guy has money. I'll take his money out of his wallet and I'll shoot him dead. Yeah. But then why would you elaborately tie him up, wrap his head in towels? It just seems very strange that that way. I would just think he would go in with a gun, mm-hmm. point it at him, say, give me the money in your wallet. Shakespeare would have probably complied. Yeah. Because he's got... $10,000 stashed away in his apartment or his house like why wouldn't he just give him the 40 bucks he had in his wallet yeah I don't think the whole tying up thing I don't know but well, glad he's you know he's and on we've the got list. the locks the locks is a real monkey wrench in a lot of these what on Shakespeare's doors yeah because they would like they were very he had been robbed he had had a break-in 12 years prior to the murder Mm -hmm. and so he had changed his locks out um none of his windows could be opened from the outside that's how they got in the during the break-in anyway was the windows so he got like super reinforced windows for the time and then changed his locks so that they couldn't even be opened from the inside without a key Mm -hmm. Uh, you had to have the key to get out of the house as well so why would he let this person in his home a kid that lived a block and a half away that might be on drugs. Yeah. And it just looks like whoever it was took, had time to take. Maybe they didn't take their time, but they managed to get him downstairs tied up. The yeah, I guess on. we should think about that with all the security measures that he takes and the locks on the doors. And he he is paranoid about people stealing his money. So you have to think that whoever came to him, he he let them in. Yeah, and how do you how do you not know, or how do you know when Ralph Porter's going to walk in? He's got this caretaker that comes over at all. He said that he could be there from sunrise to anywhere at ten at night, mm-hmm. right? So that leaves you between ten p.m., which was I believe when he got dropped off from by Bawam. Yeah, and until like early morning the next day but ralph porter didn't actually discover his body until that afternoon so no he didn't discover his body until the next day yeah yeah so like 10 p.m 10 p.m the 6th oh was that the 6th yeah and then his body was discovered on the 8th okay yeah then i'm mixing up my time because porter was at shakespeare's house on the 7th said he heard someone with shoes on Mm -hmm. in the house footsteps in the basement he didn't think was shakespeare because shakespeare never wore shoes in the house yeah but he didn't investigate it because Shakespeare had people over all the time. And the basement was kind of a like, this is none of your business kind of place to be. Yeah. 
and he did whatever he had to do in the house and left. The only reason he called down the next day was because he was supposed to install a washer and dryer that day. Yeah. And like needed to figure out how to do that. Yeah, because the, the relationship between Shakespeare and Ralph Porter was interesting because they didn't really speak to each other, it didn't seem like. They'd kind of like led their own lives. Like, I'm sure there was pleasantries, maybe, but, and obviously an exchange yeah. of money in some way, mm-hmm. but there was no, like, conversations. There was no, like, if he showed up and Shakespeare wasn't there or Shakespeare was there, he wouldn't immediately be like, hey, Shake, I'm here to do whatever, my job. He would just go in, do his job, and leave. And he worked for Shakespeare for some either 20 or 25 years Yeah. by that point. Like, they had a long history together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, him not interact like them not interacting verbally that often was weird to me, but not the most shocking part about the relationship. But the fact that he heard footsteps that weren't Shakespeare's and wasn't weirded out by that at all is strange to me. He called down the next day without hearing anything and thought it was strange that Shakespeare didn't respond. That's why he went down looking. Yeah. It's like, he would respond if I called out to him. Like, and he just knew Shakespeare was home. Like, whether he just knew Shakespeare's schedule was such that he should be home at that time or what, he knew Shakespeare was home at the time. And when, when he, he didn't called get out, an answer, he was concerned. He so, yeah, Shakespeare let someone in. Almost... Almost definitely. Porter also did say that um, when the temperature was high enough, the kitchen door just stayed open, though. True. Uh, during the day. Obviously not throughout the middle of the night, but during the day, the, the kitchen door stayed open. And there's always a possibility that somebody took advantage of that when nobody was looking. Someone who knew that fact took advantage. Well, maybe they didn't have to. They just tried the door. And then just hung out in the basement until an opportunity sees itself true like maybe they were being maybe that was the footsteps that ralph porter heard but then like they were just waiting we would uh we would have a clearer picture of this if they had taken an internal temperature of the body surely would so that we could pinpoint when he fucking died yep anyways okay moving on yeah you have some homosexual crimes yeah so this (laughs) file when it was uh when I got access to it, so I don't know if Ashley named it this or if uh, this Negative. is just like the title <laughs> of the email, um, but it was called Other Homosexual Crimes, which interest peaked. So Frank Crockett is the main name in this file. And honestly, I should just probably prepare you before we get into this, that none of this actually directly connects to Shakespeare in any tangible way, but does give us some names that could be looked into. Like if this was a professional job that isn't going to be connected to somebody in Centralia, then these are some local names that could Mm -hmm. have known or been involved with. Especially now that we are beyond a doubt convinced that John Shakespeare was gay, mm-hmm. mostly due to, I mean, pretty much what everyone had to say, except yeah. for like one of his friends who was like, I travel with him all the time. I think I would know if he was gay. I He was into women. Yeah, but it, the guy yeah. also said, uh, but he was more comfortable around married women. And the younger unmarried women, he was super uncomfortable. Yeah. Around. He was like, well, then that, that, that tracks. He was, un- he was comfortable about around married women because they wouldn't try and sleep with him. Yeah. He wouldn't have to reveal his yeah. trump card. But, and he was also, I don't know if you remember, he was um, beaten up outside of that gay bar in New Orleans. Oh, the yeah, year that before. person remembered that story. And we now have 
copies of the Odyssey Classifieds, mm-hmm. which are graphic gay pornography. Yeah, which uh, like one of them was in his home. That's why we had mm-hmm. that, that. That's why we had that scan. scan. And then I got copies of more uh, from a bookstore, an online bookstore that just happened to have like a bundle of brochures and it's it's graphic pornography yeah and i don't think there's any question that he was gay at this point yeah no i just there's no reason why he was writing a check to this company that seems to only deal in pornography and personal ads for gay men for gay men specifically if he is not like he is um (laughs) so that's (laughs) why the homosexual crimes are an avenue to be followed yeah and and like uh it was misleadingly labeled because really it's like crimes against homosexuals, which was less fun to read. <laughs> um, some of these are specifically homosexual crimes. Um, so Frank Crockett was an arsonist and he committed multiple house fires around St. Louis. I'm not sure exactly why they connected him to the Shakespeare right. crimes at all whatsoever. Was he gay? No, but he had some information <laughs> About some gay stuff and some crime <laughs> stuff that he wanted to give to the police. Okay, this is a very 1975 thing mm. where it's like, no, but one time he met a gay guy. Yeah, and he's There's got some the connection. <laughs> Can't be that many of them, right? Yeah, and like Frank Crockett wasn't even like that great at arson. Um, <laughs> he was contracted to burn down two build like large buildings in East St. Louis. And he filled both of them with over a hundred gallons of gasoline. Like Good how you're walking Lord. around with that much gasoline and nobody's like, chop two. Why do you have so many gallons um, of gasoline? Sir? I was interested, you know, <laughs> but that he also was being spoken to by the police and was a known arsonist. So I again just not the best at his craft. One of the houses he said went up like a nuclear bomb had hit it. <laughs> And the other building could it have been the one hundred gallons of gasoline. <laughs> and the other building <laughs> refused to start. <laughs> it's funny I, phrasing. I just, it uh, just refused. I find so relatable because I'm always doing things around my house that should set my house on fire, and mm-hmm. it just won't. No. Right? Like I had an electrical fire outside that literally the electrician said, "If these, if this hadn't been connected to brick steps." you wouldn't have a house right now. Like I just, My house day, refuses to go on, go up. It won't be burned. <laughs> I'm so, like now I'm just asking. I douse it in holy water. Frank Crockett, please don't use your 50/50 stats on my house. <laughs> I don't like those odds. Um but he knew who contracted arsons in the area. So he kind of had a connection to the criminal underbelly of the area and he gave his opinion on the Shakespeare murder okay. is how the interview went. And really his opinion was just look at these people. So he suggested that police look into Eddie Dunn and John Bird for reasons that he didn't explain. And then said that Billy Johnson and Dougie Collegian, quote, fit the bill. Then he said that all four of these men were known to, quote, prey on homosexuals. Dunn was suspected of killing a gay man in St. Louis. And uh, he also claimed that Dunn and Bird robbed a gay man in Alton. And all of this was late 60s, early 70s. Um, So he did have some interesting information to connect. And all of these names... And Alton is what, 45 minutes away? 
a yeah, little bit more. I think an hour. Probably a solid hour. Yeah. Hour away from Centralia. So, on I mean, the Illinois side. And so East St. Louis, also an hour. You know, yeah. like we're talking about like a. We're talking about a here. quick jaunt. So, I mean, these are criminals who would prey on homosexuals. Although, I remember reading an article that somebody had written about the John Shakespeare murder where they interviewed some uh, neighbor who absolutely insisted that he couldn't possibly have been gay because Centralia is such a small town that people know what you do before you do it. That was how she phrased it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, she was wrong. Yeah. Or he was kind of a respected person in town. So at the same time, some of these defenses about his sexuality might have more to do with the fact that they're, like, putting homosexuality under bad and yeah. not liking that Shakespeare was being... He couldn't have been. Exactly. Yeah, he couldn't have been gay. There's no way. He let us use his cars in the parade. And, like, literally that happens to me. Like, I think I am profoundly homosexual. And <laughs> I... <laughs> if I would classify my homosexuality, it would be profound. And I have, like, <laughs> classes of students who make a lot of assumptions about, like, you know, me and my life. And so often they are more heterosexual than they have any right to be Mm -hmm. and it kind of comes from i think a little bit of that you know like they're associating me with somebody that they like and they have like negative messaging about homosexuality that they don't want to connect to me because you know like i do just sound like i think that my classes enjoy my class you know like (laughs) obviously probably pie in the sky there but i think it just has a lot to do with heteronormativity and anything outside of that not feeling normal and not what your brain not wanting to make that connection because it doesn't jive with your perspective yeah and there's still such a heavy comparison to lgbtqa and deviancy yeah like the trans bathroom bills and like assuming that any trans person is trying to get into a bathroom for sexual assault or uh molestation purposes yeah it's like really they you think that these bathroom. people, you think that these people would s- spend that much money on transitioning and that much pain? I have friends who most of them are male transitioning to female. The amount of pain that they have to go through with the hormones and with the lasering of their facial oh, hair, God. the amount of excruciating pain that these people have to go through and the ridicule that they have to go through where they go when they still look more male than female you really think that they're doing all of that so they could touch you in the bathroom yeah you're an idiot just become a boy scout leader (laughs) just yeah just become a pastor or a priest boom there you go that that gets you more access to molesting children than becoming a trans person yeah this is like just faulty logic from the beginning anyways go on we got off on a tangent honestly that's we all got real frank- heated yeah i know well you know I, <laughs> yeah I but do like, like what was the, what were their homosexual crimes like didn't they crimes against homosexuals Cri- crime, was literally against all homosexuals. they had done they had robbed a gay man and one was suspected like was on the list of suspects of a murder of a gay man in st louis okay that was the connection so i mean like not unhelpful Mm-hmm. Um, and provided some interesting avenues, uh, but again, that's where the trail ends for us. Cause because I thought I read no that records. they, the way that they committed these homosexual crimes mm. was that they would basically like pretend to be gay. Yes. Uh, to like do... lure them into a, a, a 
compromising situation. I have my packet that I labeled other homosexual <laughs> crimes <laughs> as it was. Guys, we have so much paper. We're so sorry to I've the environment. Got just but... a binder full of things. Ugh. I am flagged by the NSA, the FBI. Just like looking up murder <laughs> statistics, I was like, man, I... am on a list. Mm-hmm. Gotta be. <laughs> oh, yep. Here it is. Other homosexual crimes. Um. Yeah, so it didn't give a lot of good information on those particular guys. But then there were also other files in here that had like actual crimes of men who were known to be homosexual that had been robbed, that had been murdered, um, that the cases had not been solved. Oh. So there was kind of a string of kind of like with your cash crime um there's a string of crimes against people who kind of fit shakespeare's profile but nobody of his uh renown like nobody who ended up in newspapers for things other than being robbed or murdered right you know nobody who had you know 2.5 million dollars handcuffed tied with phone cord ice pick threatened with ice pick okay a victim invited subjects to home for the purpose of homosexual contact. And they also did like a bait and switch. So it would be a, uh, one of the guys would, uh, you know, initiate contact. They'd get kind of flirty. They'd end up upstairs in a bedroom and then the guy would need to use the restroom. Mm-hmm. And he'd either make a call or he'd go downstairs and unlock the door or whatever. But he would let the uh, other man in and then the robbery double team possible murder all that stuff would happen um and so it was definitely like aimed specifically at gay men like that was what that was who they wanted to prey upon in that process um but none of those actually led to or led police to continuing that investigation they did however collect some evidence that there were similar crimes happening in the area. Okay. It just seems weird because like Shakespeare does not fit these main profiles. Like these are guys picking up other guys at a bar. Yeah. Shakespeare seemed very um, extremely private Mm -hmm. and it did not seem like he did any of his, if he did have relations, sexual relationships with men, he definitely didn't do it anywhere near home. Yeah. It doesn't seem like. The only person I can even find that is suspected to be one of his, and I hate the word lovers, but that's like the word that keeps getting used. <laughs> oh my God. Um, is Shaler. Yeah. The third. And he was just also quite rich and loved cars, which, okay, that's the other thing. You're going to, you're going to tell me that two, two <laughs> homosexual men are that into cars. Yeah. I hate talking about cars (laughs) i don't know a car from another car (laughs) not at all (laughs) at all you can show me (laughs) any car for the 1970s and tell me it was a bugatti and i'd be like yep "Yep, probably (laughs) my when joe and i first came i think we talked about this on the last episode we first uh joe came with me to illinois and uh my parents were picking us up they didn't like come into the airport they were just gonna pull up oh nice I think just my dad was picking me up and he was like, well, what does he drive? I was like, a truck. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, but like what kind of truck? I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, what color is it? I was like, uh, silver. Yeah. All trucks are boys. Yeah. Silver, maybe. It was literally like charcoal gray. <laughs> like it was, I was nowhere near. And Joe was like, how are you that blind 
to a type of car. I was like, you know what types of car I know? Nissan Sentra, because that's what I drive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Familiar with that? See, I could, see I could another spot one. A Jeep Liberty like yeah. that. <laughs> if I know? see another Nissan Sentra on the road, I'm like, car twin, and I know it. Mm-hmm. Other than that, no idea. Yeah, couldn't tell you. Mercedes. Yeah. I want to see the artist sketch mark. of the truck you were thinking of. <laughs> It was basically like something out of Roger Rabbit, like Who Framed Roger nice. Rabbit. It was basically a cartoon with like a face and it walked on its wheels instead <laughs> of just, drove. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he drives. Couldn't tell you. Oh, love it. All right. So the next person that we have to talk about, mm-hmm. this is a treat, <sighs> is a man named L.R. Huffman. Oh, buddy. <laughs> so, in 2002, the city of Hoffman, Illinois, which is how far from Centralia? I'd say seven, border to border. Really? Yeah, True. because like... No, you're right. Basically, as you're driving by Cascadia College, you're like halfway to Hoffman. Yeah. Right? And Isn't that how that works? Yeah, and the, it's the same... Hold on. It's the same same direction? No, it's not the same direction as Sandoval. I was wrong. But yes, it's very close. Mm-hmm. Basically the same city. In 2002, the city of Hoffman Police Department received a letter from a man named L.R. Huffman, who was at the time incarcerated at the Five Points Prison in Romulus, New York. The letter read, Did you guys in this town have a guy named Shakespeare murdered after being tied up, gagged, and tortured, and he gave up hidden cash places? Back of barn? Question mark. If so, I met an old guy who was part of three people that did it. If not, it's probably just talk. If so, do not come and see me or tell any prison staff as that would get me killed. Just send me a letter on whom to write to or call, collect, and we'll go from there. Put legal mail on it and I'll get it unopened. If I don't hear from you in a week, I'll throw out all my notes on this matter. Oh, snap this message will (laughs) self-destruct hoffman pd immediately sent the letter to centralia pd which at the time was being led by steve prather and here's a crazy connection his daughter Mackenzie prather is the host of the podcast death by champagne stop it yes uh like our sister podcast they also talk about um like a lot of true crime but they also talk about like some weird paranormally stuff too Mm. so they're great And I believe they're based out of St. Louis. Anyways, she's awesome. Check out that podcast. So I reached out to Mackenzie, obviously, and we asked her dad some cues, but he, of course, could not answer them. What with this still technically being an open investigation, but we tried. Damn it. Also, go listen to Death by Champagne. So Steve Prather responded uh, to this letter basically saying... Yes, we had something like that happen in Centralia, which is about seven miles away from Hoffman, where you sent your letter. Obviously, he said he was interested in talking to Huffman about this. Huffman responded to that letter by saying, I cannot tell you how astounded I am that an old man that made a comment to me, this is in, this is in a direct quote, that me and some buddies of mine killed a bastard in a town with your last name, and it has turned out to be true. 
He goes on to say he's uncomfortable talking on the phone because there's no privacy and he's also uncomfortable identifying this person while he's still in the same prison with him. And the whole's like in a town of your name. His name was Huffman. They were thinking Hoffman, which again borders Centralia basically. Mm -hmm. And if you're not from the area, easy to confuse Huffman with Hoffman. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. We're in Hoffman. No, you were in Centralia. Who who the fuck cares? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wherever we were. So basically these letters go back and forth and back and forth with Huffman saying like, I'm not going to just tell you the name of the guy unless you can for sure convict him and move me out of this prison because I would be killed. And also it would be nice if you could clear my prison disciplinary record because I have all these points against me. And it's just like any like Huffman was a career snitch. Yeah. He literally like this is what he did. He was an informant like. A prison informant. He had done this multiple times. And his and letters he's not going to do yeah. it without getting something. No. And his letters, he knew how to establish his credibility in a weird way. Yeah. Because he said, you know, all of my crimes are financial. I embezzled. You mm-hmm. know, like that way he made it very, very clear that he like didn't go for something super seedy. He wanted you to yeah. know that he was like. Uh, it wasn't for murder. White collar criminal. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am white. Yeah. And I have a white collar. <laughs> like, please listen to what I have to say. Yeah, I shouldn't be in here. So uh, he had points against him and he made sure to say that one was for a joint and one was for mouthing off. It's not like he shanked a guy. Yeah, although I looked and one of them was he tried to like he gave evidence to a uh, he found something and handed it to a guard and then asked the guard to pay him for it. Yeah. Like it was like a bribe situation. It was bribery and not mouthing off. very quid pro quo, this Huffman. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, without a clear record, though, without these expunged from his record, he can't apply for a transfer, which he would need, uh, according to him, to proceed with this arrangement, which on one hand I get. You can't like turn evidence against a guy that you're in prison with because if it gets back to this guy that you did it, you're in danger. Yeah. Especially if you are in jail for, like, financial crimes. You're not, like, a tough, hardened criminal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you probably are are struggling in there. And it makes sense that he would want to side with law enforcement as opposed to the criminals that he finds himself to, like, not actually be a part of that population. You yeah. know, like, he probably sees himself as above, above the general guys. population of that prison. Mm-hmm. And he's in maximum security because right. of those three uh, violations, right? Like, he, he knew he'd immediately get moved to medium yeah. if those violations were He wanted were to gone. be moved to, he also wanted, like, a work release. I don't know. Prather basically being like, I don't really have that kind of power. And I'm unfamiliar with how the system works in your prison and New York in general. I'm in fucking Centralia, Illinois, dude. And Prather asked for some kind of information to help move this along. Because he's basically like, you have to give me something in order yeah. for me to pursue this send someone to new york or, or or spend all my time pursuing this thing that may not may or may not be true so in the next letter huffman says that his friend the guy who killed shakespeare supposedly is over 50 seriously over so if he was say like 65 in 2002 that means when shakespeare was killed he would have been 33 ish in 1975 mm-hmm. which is generally around the age of a lot of our suspects yeah so Okay. And a lot of the ages of uh, like sightings, uh, hitchhiker yeah, sightings. Yeah, hitchhiker like. sightings as well. 
Huffman says that he made a sketch in his diary after the guy told him about how he killed Shake in his, quote, younger years, about how they tortured him in the basement before getting money out of a barn. He said that he would be able to kind of describe the crime scene as proof that this was real. Of course, Prather came back and was basically like, hey, there are pictures of the crime scene on the front page of the paper, as well as a good amount of details about the crime and on the case. So... The Centralia PD's concern is that the person telling him these could have easily obtained all the information that he shared by reading the news articles on the case, which I don't know why. I don't know how they would get that information. It was 2002. Mm -hmm. So in New York. But was this a federal prison or a state prison? Five points prison. I don't know. Because if it's fe- like if if these are people locked up for federal crimes, then they could be they could be from anywhere. They could be put in yeah any federal prison True. A- across the country for no reason. Five points prison. Well, let's hey, let's take a minute. Let's look it up. Yeah. Actually, I'll look it up. You go into the whole barn thing, the cars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So L. R. Huffman claimed that the explanation for. Uh, why they committed the murder was to torture the i think they call him a rich bastard yeah into telling them where he hid his money which like okay he's a rich person not a leprechaun they don't like (laughs) always have money hidden so i don't know where the conclusion came from but he uh claimed that shakespeare admitted that he had um sold some fancy foreign cars under the table and had which been kind ca- of makes sense because remember he sold the cars for like a very low amount people were shocked at how low it was so it could be that he under the table got the other half yeah like i mean and i he, don't know why though we had plenty of money but he has like swiss credit banking accounts and he has like cayman island payments like he he's not a stranger to tax havens yeah so him like trying to not pay all the taxes on what he's doing an international exchange for or was it did he sell it to somebody internationally mm-hmm. or, yeah yeah uh, for an international exchange that like i could see that but again like that's kind of like the wealth hoarding grossness that i yeah. don't like to look into but um so he claimed that he kept all of that money that he had managed to withhold from his like irs papers uh in the barn where he had kept the cars um and like we looked at this barn it didn't look like a very secure barn like didn't look like a secure enough place to keep your cars much less your money much less thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars like it doesn't seem i don't know that that seemed wrong and also just the fact that like so they killed him in centralia Mm mm-hmm after making him tell them where the money is, killed him and drove to Hoffman and like just hoped that he was telling the truth? Or did they like tie him up and left them him there and gagged him so that no one could hear, drove to Hoffman, got the money? But then why would they waste their time driving back to Centralia to shoot this guy, especially if this money is money that he's not supposed to have? So it's not like he would report this money stolen. Yeah. That just didn't make sense to me. But I will say the whole barn thing, 
um, I told Stephen about this already, but uh, the barn thing interested me because I was like, he lives in the middle of town. He doesn't have a barn. That's really weird. So my mom drove me past his house yesterday and we're driving past the front of his house and we slow down and we look and I realize in his backyard attached to his garage is a red barn Mm -hmm. in his backyard, which my mom said back in the day is where Shakespeare kind of put his like little home gym. Yeah. Like all of his exercise equipment, like that's where he would exercise. And uh, we pulled around to the back so I can get a better look at this barn. It was, it's it's a barn in his backyard, yeah. which is kind of crazy because it's not in any of the crime scene mm-hmm. photos. They didn't they didn't They I, don't mention it. They don't really. look You don't see pictures of anywhere other than the basement, the basement. really. Like you don't see and the stairs leading down to the basement. Yeah, you don't see the drawers that were supposedly left open. You don't mm-hmm. see like the kitchen where that like soda bottle was mysteriously sitting on the counter. Yeah. So the barn now today is uh, actually an apartment. Mm-hmm. It's like 514 South Pine and it's 514 and a half South Pine. Basically, it's a little apartment back there. So anyways, in all this time that these letters are being exchanged, Prather is also getting letters from a bunch of attorneys from all over, basically praising L.R. Huffman and saying that he turned state's evidence and that he was a reliable informant, et cetera, et cetera. Basically saying, like, we could not have closed this case without his, his you know, participation. But it was super interesting to note the post-it on that yeah. scanned letter. There was a post-it on one of the letters that said, quote, Gary, Huffman lies every time his lips move. Caution advised. Signed, Mark G. Who's Gary? Who's Mark G? Who's Mark G? I want to know. Who are these people? And like, is that is that a note from like a guard who just like spends time around Huffman and knows like what he's about? It was on one of the um, the scanned FBI. Yeah. Pages. Which is why I thought it might be a federal uh, prison because they, uh, this it's is not what, state prison. Nice. Okay. So it's New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. So these are likely all people. But it who is maximum security. State. Yeah. Anyways, the FBI gets involved. Uh, Huffman refuses to provide information or testimony until he gets to speak with the public defender and he negotiates something out of it. Listen, I'm not giving you this name until you give me something. That is the point of this. Mm -hmm. He wanted his prison disciplinary record cleared. Then he wanted a transfer. At one point, he asked for $500. Like He literally was like, I have to get something. That is how this works. I don't just like give you my information. So then in February of 2003, Prather gets a letter saying, call Richard Schaefer at Queens County District Attorney and he will provide you with the identity of old man who murdered Shakespeare. He has my notes. Signed, L.R. Huffman. The next letter is from Prather to Huffman basically saying, hey, I called this number several times without ever speaking to anyone. I just keep getting an answering machine. What the hell? But he also thanks him for continuing to write him, even though he wasn't able to do anything for him. And he ends the letter by asking Huffman, like, what made him change his mind about releasing the information? I hope that we can nail this guy. And that was the last fucking letter. Yep. There is nothing else in this file. L.R. Huffman. 
listeners, looking for a morbid podcast to fill your deadly desires? I'm Mackenzie. And I'm Olivia. The host of Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. Each week, we have a booze-fueled conversation about scary murders, haunted houses, cold cases, tales of the occult, and anything else that's spooky and deadly. Find Death by Champagne on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to hear about stories like the demise of the Lemp family, an insane episode on kidnappings, the Beckford hauntings, an episode dedicated to crimes in Australia, and others like Ouija boards, vampires, and cold cases from the Midwest. We release new episodes every Friday, so tune in, get your sage ready, bring your cat keychain, surround yourself in a salt circle, and camp out under the covers. See you then! So, no idea if Steve Prather was able to ever get a name from him. I ended up plugging in a bunch of our guys' names, like the guys that obviously were still alive, <laughs> into because you can do like an inmate search. Yeah. Didn't really get anything. I, a couple things that stood out to me. Uh, mixed into this, these letters are the pictures of the dead man. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that being in the the same package. Yeah, so in the middle of these letters, there's it's very shocking. I mm, was not expecting again. it. Yeah, just surprise. Yeah, dead bodies. Two pictures of a dead man. Um, no labels on it. Uh, just has a date nine twenty three eighty two at hospital. That's what it says nine twenty three eighty two at hospital. It's a Polaroids. So I compared the pictures of the dead man to the other pictures that I have. And I found out that the dead man in the photos shoved in with the letters is David Gaddy. Oh, yeah. so that was him at the... At the hospital where he got shot. Yeah. The guy who was shot and killed in the hospital and lived a block and a half from Shakespeare. And of course, he was shot and killed on 9-23-82, which mm-hmm. is what the date is. But why was his photo in with the letters if this guy's writing in 2002 and Gaddy died in 82... Maybe Gaddy didn't do it alone, and maybe the guy in prison with Huffman did it with Gaddy and a third man. It seems like but at least one of the people the who connection. committed this crime should probably be from around here. Yeah. And Gaddy is. Yeah. So, like, Gaddy could have been the connection mm-hmm. to this. And the thing is, is like Gaddy moved all the way to California. Yeah. So it wouldn't, you know, maybe they did end up getting a lot of money and gaddy moved to california this guy moved to new york Mm -hmm. they continue to do crimes gaddy's hooked on dope this guy does whatever lr huffman or the guy who's in prison with lr huffman does something to get put in maximum security prison yeah and maybe uh another one possible leads william flanagan born 1938 yeah and is this the same William Flanagan who refused to take the lie detector test due to high blood pressure? Did you have stuff on William Flanagan? I have so much oh, stuff please, on William Flanagan. Go, go. Okay, so um, William Flanagan was friends with Shakespeare for 15 years. Wow, okay. He lived in Ashley, Illinois, which I always think is funny because like the signs on the interstate to get to Centralia say Centralia Ashley. Yeah. And Ashley once told me that she saw those signs as a little note to her that she was home. Yeah. It's Centralia Ashley. Mm-hmm. We would be coming home from like vacation and my dad would be like, look, we're almost home. 
sweet. So, yeah. so yeah, William Flanagan uh, once owned a 1953 Aston Martin. He was very into Ooh. old cars, which is like the connection that Shakespeare has with most of the people that he talks to. Yeah. It's like they were all really into old cars, which once again unrelatable Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the two would meet in ashley illinois once a week and shakespeare would drive uh flanagan to the burlitz language school in belleville okay and they referred to these as weird foreign language classes that's how other people (laughs) who talked about this referred to it later after a divorce earlier in his life in the mid-1940s, Flanagan suffered a nervous breakdown and spent oh. time in institutions in Farmington, Missouri, and Anna, Illinois, which Anna came up last time. Um, okay, so during the uh, police interview, Flanagan denied that the car seen at Shakespeare's house just a few days before the body fa- uh, was found was his. And this was like that gray or green or some other color Jaguar. Yeah. Which the- Shakespeare had a Jaguar in his like estate sale. So it's probably just Shakespeare's vehicle that we've been referring to. Um, but I believe Flanagan also had like a fancy old car at the time that people might have confused with the Jaguar. Maybe, yeah. Um, and he kept telling police that they would be starting at a that they should be starting at a different level in their investigation but refused to elaborate on what that meant yeah what the hell does that mean so he's like yeah like I, you shouldn't be talking to me you should be starting at a different level like i don't know this guy sounds kind of paranoid i think yeah. he's saying like this is a cia murder or something yeah like that. or just like you know maybe the maybe he's referring to the woms mm. because the thing about the woms is they weren't just like oh william wom he was a lawyer the wom and wom lawyers were very affluent and they are kind of a family. Like if you watch a movie on, you know, a small southern town and there's always that family that kind yeah. of like runs the town. Not so much today, but around that time, apparently that's kind of how it was. For sure. They also were related to like state legislators yeah. and like people who were very high up in Illinois. So that could be what he means by another level. Starting a different level. Um, his sister and cousin were both interviewed. Neither knew that Flan- what Flanagan did for a living when oh. he worked in STL. And like, he wouldn't even explain to the police what he did for a living. It's very strange. Um, he emphasized, they both the, of them emphasized that he wouldn't tell them. Wow. Okay. Flanagan stated that several teenagers were at Shakespeare's house the last time he had visited, but he also claimed that he had not talked to Shakespeare for about 30 days by the time Shakespeare was murdered, which is strange coming from somebody who has a weekly appointment to drive to Belleville with him, but that he had planned to call Shakespeare the day the murder was announced on the radio. Like he was reaching for the phone, listened to the radio story and heard that he no longer needed to place that call. Um, Flanagan claimed Shakespeare never showed any homosexual t- tendencies while in his presence. This might actually be the letter that you were talking about earlier. Possibly. And he mentioned Wom as a friend, like when uh, talking about reasons why Shakespeare was killed. He even mentioned Shakespeare's oil holdings, which did exist, but were in the 20,000s and not even his largest like holding, as a possible reason for Shakespeare being killed because okay. they knew that he was in the oil business. Claims he was followed home one night after leaving Shakespeare's the last night he saw Shakespeare alive. Well, maybe he was referencing the oil holdings because one of the, we talked about this on the last episode, one of the suspects was his old partner. partner. Yeah. Who seems like a really nice company. guy. He seems like a really nice guy. And also, like, they didn't end on bad terms. Shakespeare, like, bought them out. Yeah. And was like, like here, it's And yours. continued to let him use his name. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Whatever. But, yeah, they said that they followed him all the way home to Irvington, which is weird because, like, he lives, he lived in Ashley. 
but that yeah he got followed all the way to irvington on his way to ashley i'm assuming and then uh, ibi agent martin f mccarthy reported that flanagan was very uncooperative in providing details of his personal history to investigators so like this dude would not talk about what he did for a living right would not talk about like how he spent his days before he stopped working entirely mm-hmm. and absolutely had a breakdown that sent him to multiple institutions and what years was that? That was in the mid 1940s after oh, okay. uh, after his one and only marriage ended. Okay. Which I only bring up because like maybe this breakdown had more to do with like sexuality things, like maybe that's why he's connected to Shakespeare other than just car things. Did he have a son with the same name? I did not see that, but that is quite possible. Because I typed in William Flanagan in the lookup, the prisoner lookup yeah, thing. Yeah, the inmates. And I got a hit Ooh. Born 1938. So he would still be married. Of course, could be a completely different William Flanagan. I don't know. But. Yeah, because mid 40s would have been when the divorce happened. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be. Right. But if he was, if he did have a son, maybe he could have like committed it with the son. Mm-hmm. That was the only name that got a hit. Was William Flanagan. Was William Flanagan. But it said he was born 1938. And I was like, well. That doesn't make sense because it said the only thing I could find was that when asked about his employment history, she said in 1942 and 1943, he had a job in Farmington, Missouri. I said, well, that wouldn't be possible if he was born in 1938 because he'd be four and five years old. Yeah. I mean, like the 70s was a wild (laughs) time, but. But there was another piece of investigator notes. Yeah. That listed Flanagan as being 51 years old, which would made his birth year 1924, not 1938. If he was 50. At the time of Shakespeare's murder. And 14 at the birth of that other mm-hmm. William Flanagan. And the other name that I got a hit on was David Gaddy, but we know he couldn't have been in prison because he was shot in 1982. White dead. Yeah. Uh, but every other suspect's name, I've got nothing. No one seems to have served time in the New York correctional system because the inmate lookup that I'm looking up searches all of New York's correctional all facilities. Because it says like which one they're in and, and if they were if they're still there, if they died in prison or if they were paroled. So whoever it was, if they were telling the truth in these letters, was either never questioned or was an accomplice to one of the suspects that we do know of. Yeah. Which it's just like the fact that groups of three keep showing up. Yeah. Is interesting. It is interesting. Like that must have been an investigative pursuit that at least the first investigation mm-hmm. looked into was not just multiple, but it does seem to three specific keep group up. of three. Yeah. Um, that's all I have. So whatever else you have, you take it away. I got a little bit of potpourri for you guys. So <laughs> we're going to talk about Ralph Porter a little bit more. Yeah. Because he's like, his story changes every single time. It does. Even just with the IBI, he's, he's investigated multiple times and his story is different each and every time. But Ralph Porter was the caretaker who worked for John Shakespeare for 20 years. He, when asked what was missing from the house, he stated a jade necklace or a can of mace because that came up later, which was the tear gas canister. And radio with a police band were missing from the house after the murder. Which we did what do see. you mean police band? Is that like like you could the listen police to? Scanner? Yeah, you could listen yeah. to okay. the um, police radio. Oh, that sounds like a thing. <laughs> but he also we saw that he did have like a radio technician 
certification Shakespeare yeah, did. So did. like maybe he made maybe this he bought radio, yeah, or you know? maybe he bought it specifically just as another one of his endless hobbies. Mm-hmm. So he last saw Shakespeare on May fifth, like physically saw him with his eyeballs. Okay, thought he heard Shakespeare working downstairs, maybe on his typewriter. This is the same like heard shoes down there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm also thinking like, didn't the old film projectors kind of sound like typewriters? I'll, I'll insert an old film projector yeah. sound into where I just did that cat yeah. purring sound. Yeah, yeah. Film projector or... <laughs> or cat. Giant cat. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a big cat angle we haven't covered? Please. <laughs> but he introduced a an investigative line that gets kind of weird because he was certain it was Bernie Gross um, yeah. and said over and over again that he just kept coming back to that night and thinking mm-hmm. it had to be Bernie Gross. He also stated that he didn't know that Bernie Gross was on the property when the police were taking the body out. But um, the police told Ralph Porter that, in fact, he was standing behind him behind a tree in Shakespeare's yard yeah. watching that go down. Which, like, that sounds creepy, but it also only sounds like there are two people in the yard, which is inaccurate. Like, half that neighborhood was standing in Shakespeare's yard watching this happen. Yeah, watching them take the body away on a stretcher Like, a there's just a picture of a crowd, it yeah. looks like. Also, I feel like the murderer probably wasn't... Well, I don't know. Some murderers like to go to like you know the press conferences afterwards yeah they get something out of that but why would you go literally that night as the police are investigating like yeah you're not proving your timeline by being there after he's dead yeah like what why show up to this it seems weird but go on yeah he claimed that he had recently had to discourage gross from visiting the house that gross was kind of a regular visitor to shakespeare Mm -hmm. and shakespeare mostly tolerated it now to know about bernie gross like he was a strange guy. Anybody who knew Bernie Gross will tell you he was a strange guy. Yeah. Um, your mom literally just told me that they had to tell him to stay off the hospital floor because he would visit his girlfriend and say crazy things. Really? Um, and that he pretended to be in the FBI for a time period. And just it, he w- gave very classic symptoms of somebody who was suffering from paranoia, probably as a, a, a result of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Well, and also didn't when they interviewed him, didn't he say like it had to be government or cia that did it yes yeah, so like when, so I, yeah bernie gross was interviewed and said very very strange things including that he uh, uh like when he refused to answer a question he wouldn't refuse to answer it he'd say that's not in the national interest <laughs> yeah I which remember. like okay. is going to be my go-to line <laughs> when i don't want to answer a question that doesn't seem to be in the national interest you can use that on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> so how's life? How's it? Are you dating anyone? That's not in the national interest. Let's not Thank tear you. this country down with your rhetoric. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Porter said that Gross had been acting strangely. Mm, um, <laughs> Shakespeare said he kept worrying about foreigners coming into the country. Which, like, you know, 75, 2019, nothing's changed. Yeah. Porter told police that they're pu- search into Cypel, Frank Cypel, which I have some information on, but he's not, he's not a great lead. And other business associates was ill-informed that Gross was the only person he thought it could be. Just wow. like, this Ralph is Porter the guy. Convinced. Shakespeare told Porter that Gross thought Shakespeare was a communist. And Gross was afraid communists were going to take over the world. Ah, okay. Which, like... Well, you know what? The Mattachine Society that I told you about earlier mm-hmm. that ran the Odyssey Club, they were communists. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of social justice programs mm-hmm. um, between the 50s and 80s uh, were like had communist ties. Yeah. So maybe he did find 
I don't know, something that said Mattachine in his home. Also, it was Shakespeare's an weird like, focus group. on economics. Like, yeah, well, I feel like true. he's also like quite wealthy. Uh, but like communists don't love the wealthy, you know, like yeah. and the bourgeoisie are the winners in the conversation that communists tend to have. So it was weird that... It, that was the accusation. But Porter recalls a Saturday when Gross tried to run into Shakespeare's basement. And this is what I find interesting because like the whole door being open from time to time, right? Mm -hmm. Like this dude literally got into Shakespeare's house, was running down the basement stairs uh, and Shakespeare wasn't home. So Porter managed to stop him and send him on his way. But like already tried to get into that basement that Maybe he thinks something was in there. Like that was another thing with like if it wasn't money that they were looking for, maybe it was something else they were looking for that the police wouldn't necessarily know like, oh, they were here to take that thing. Or maybe these cameras and all this stuff is now setting out because Bernie Gross decided to like ruffle through some things, rifle through some things and like look and did find some incriminating evidence, you know, like who can say what was down there? But he claimed that Shakespeare never... uh, Oh, yeah, this... Porter. Porter also claimed that Shakespeare never missed counts meetings. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, see, Pat? So that's another weird Pat Sedlin line. Uh, Like, that's two people contradicting what Pat Sedlin had to say about meetings. Yeah, so Bernie Gross requested to speak to the police regarding the Shakespeare murder, not the other way around. Okay. Super paranoid, kept referencing the national interest and that no one in Centralia can be trusted, police especially, and thought he was being followed. Which, like, how many people think they're being followed from Centralia? I know, I was going to say, what's his name? Uh, yeah, yeah, Flanagan. Flanagan. But they, like both of these people are like notably unstable, and Shakespeare True. spending lots of time around both of them. Like Bernie Gross was over friends. weekly, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, like, okay, we'll get into it. Bernie Gross is just interesting. Um, When asked if he knew who killed Shakespeare, he said, not exactly. Ah, not exactly who pulled the trigger, but I know why, probably, is what he meant by not exactly. Elaborate, (laughs) you know? please. Um, Yeah, you didn't ask any more questions, guys? (laughs) Oh, no, they did. But (laughs) the answers weren't in the national interest. Right, of course. So, uh, said he visited Shakespeare five or six times to, quote, get magazine articles and shoot the bull. Magazine articles? Magazine articles was interesting to me. What magazine articles? What magazine articles? Yeah, they they only magazine... subscribe to a very specific magazine that we have interest in. Lots of dicks in them. When asked if he owned a gun, he admitted to owning a twenty-two revolver that had a cylinder in the 60s, but he hadn't seen it in years. Okay. What? Yeah. Emphatic that he learned of the murder through radio or television. Like, the police notes make note of how emphatic he was what that that's he how he found out. he took the police scanner? Well, here's the thing. If he learned about it through the radio or television, how is he standing in the yard when the police are pulling yeah. the body out? Yeah, he's not. He had to have known. Yeah. Like they were not announcing it on the radio. But when he said radio, it could have been police scanner is what he meant by radio. Which is a perfectly. And if he stole John Shakespeare's radio, then very, very possible. Nice. Yeah. You're Um, welcome. World. (laughs) He refused to answer several questions, seeing that uh, saying that particular subject or question was not in the national interest and had been uh, seen looking in Shakespeare's windows and even hiding behind a tree in his yard. Other than the night that he was hiding behind oh a tree while the police God. were there. Like, the, he liked to hide behind that tree. Um, he took a polygraph, but the results had to be qualified based on the subject's, quote, known emotional behavior. Yeah. Four days after the shooting, 
and we're talking about Ronald Reagan in this note. Sorry. Oh. Um, <laughs> sorry. I need to backtrack for a second. Yes. So okay. James Brady is mm-hmm. famous Centralian. Famous Centralian. Mm-hmm. He is famous for taking a bullet for Ronald Reagan. Now, I believe this is the assassin who wanted to impress Jodie Foster. I believe so. Was was he paralyzed? He was yes, paralyzed. Yes, he was paralyzed he? from the yeah. waist down. From so that. when you drive into Centralia, it says home of James Brady. Mm-hmm. And uh, four days after that shooting, Bernie Gross snuck into James Brady's hospital in Washington. Secret Service was physically carrying him out of the building when Brady's wife identified Gross and they stopped. Really? Yeah. So, like, I realize that seems like a bit of a tangent, but Shakespeare's death was a national news story. Yeah. Reagan's assassination was a national news story. Bernie Gross has inserted himself into both of these things. So uh-huh. I see a connection in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and he was, quote, always seen carrying a soda. Ah. Even when he went to do that interview with the police, he had a soda in his hand. So, so this, the unknown soda, because Shakespeare did not drink soda. I didn't, like, there wasn't any in his house other than that one like half-finished bottle, which... We didn't oh, have DNA, DNA at the time, did we? No. I mean, it's 75. Not from saliva. Yeah, they could have done could like have a done blood type and test. Blood type. Yeah. Fuck. So yeah, the soda was found on the counter of Shakespeare's kitchen when he was found, and it was noted to be like out of place. Like, what is that doing there? Yeah. Um, so calling card, uh, absent-minded mistake of a disturbed man who thought that he was saving the world from communism. Like, question mark. Yeah. But Bernie Gross. I find interesting. I do too. And so did Ralph Porter. So we also have information on Robert Haig, and that's a question mark on the spell or the pronunciation, uh, Jr., who was a coin collector and occasional guest of Shakespeare. I guess because of all the coin collection, because Probably they both Shakespeare had, just, had a lot of coins. Oh my God. More so, than nickels. More, yeah, more than just $500 worth of nickels. <laughs> they traded coins, mm-hmm. which. As a sentence looks like Pokemon cards. It's adorable. Head. Yeah, I know. They're just like <laughs> those kids that. They instead- traded coins and pogs. <laughs> Remember the kids that instead of like uh, just hanging out in the cold would go into the cafeteria and play Magic the Gathering? Yeah. That's who I imagine. Like that's what I see when I think about this like coin trade, which is like, good for them. They stayed warm. Uh, <laughs> lots of debts and had some organized crime connections, but those could just be him like wanting to sound important and didn't actually have connections. Yeah, maybe. He did have an organized crime associate, though, Malcolm Flynn, who did attend Shakespeare's funeral. Okay. Which was interesting. And, oh, yeah, the list, like, we have the list of every single person who went to the funeral. Mm-hmm. We have the list of everyone who attended the burial, which was, like, three people. There was yeah. uh, Because that was in Michigan. Well, because there was a funeral in Centra- Centralia mm-hmm. had a funeral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he committed... What was called an apparent suicide on July 7th of 1975. Apparent. Which, yeah, I'm like, "Hmm, okay, eyebrows. Friends said he had been acting strangely, hardly eating for several months. Several months, okay. July 7th of 1975 was a month after Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's murder. So he was already, like, not eating before that. Acting weird before that, which, like, like, same story as Bernie Gross, you know. It is kind of, like, exactly one month after the murder, and he obviously was friends with Shakespeare in some way, right? Yeah. said associate. They they, they they traded traded coins, coins. yeah. So if he did have organized crime, maybe he sold Shakespeare out. Oh, yeah. Not that, necessarily he's the one that killed him. But, but he knows maybe why he, and how Shakespeare's dead. Maybe yeah. he spent enough time in his house, told some of his associates, and 
was you know maybe they had asked him to like get more intel and that's why he stopped eating because he didn't want to do this to his friend and then his friend ends up murdered and then he fucking kills himself because and Haig was an interesting dude like his dad was well connected i like not governor level but like illinois state government level in 1962 and he was fairly young back then he was charged with stealing an eight thousand dollar tractor and spent some time in jail for that okay um another We've all been there yeah you know you just need a tractor a friend stated that the only reason Haig would commit suicide would be the fear of going back to jail that he oh. had no other fears that would have resulted in or no other reasons to commit suicide other than just refusing to go back to jail and that okay. was something that they said outright. His wife could not explain the suicide. She went to bed at 1.30 that night, asked him to come to bed at 2.30, like got up and, and like his, his daughter also was with them. She went to bed at 1.30 as well, asked him to go to bed at 2.30 and then his wife woke up at 4 a.m. to the gunshot that he had shot himself on their couch, which like, God... Ugh. Okay, so um, their daughter Rena was in the home, according to the f- uh, a friend, Vernita Granda. Haig was acting very strangely for the past eight weeks, so that's more specific than several months. To due to an IRS investigation into him and his business, she also stated that he acted very depressed in the last two weeks, hardly speaking to anyone. Okay, so that would be like within our timeline. Said mm-hmm. the suicide couldn't have been about money because his father would have been able to help him, and Haig would have asked if he needed it like there's absolutely no reason that money problems even the irs looking into him would have been an issue for him he could have you know gotten past that uh sheriff Dahl claimed that there were rumors that Haig's business was two hundred thousand dollars in debt though which would have been like like i don't know if daddy money can fix that or if daddy money would fix that yeah so i mean his connection to shakespeare is established but his motive for killing shakespeare is kind of wobbly unless there is this like magic money pack that we nobody knew of that that, nobody knew existed but the murderer somehow benefited from and a fantastic stroke of murder luck yeah i was gonna say it wouldn't have been Haig, because then he you know if he stole if the the motive was money and he stole all the money where's the money and how is he possibly in debt yeah so so, yeah, he is a kind of shaky one, but, you know, if he got a payoff for pointing people in the direction of somebody who would be a profitable murder, mm-hmm. then maybe there's that. Maybe. Yeah. And then I think the only thing I have left is cell therapy. I'm interested in hearing about cell therapy. Okay. So, Shakespeare... Had a lot of interesting investments. You know, he wanted to put his money in a lot of different places, which is smart financial sense, no matter who you're asking. But he put his money in some weird places, too. Mm-hmm. And he also put his hopes into some interesting individuals uh, and pursuits. And ideas. <laughs> so he wrote a letter to Gibson, who was his financial advisor. Remember, they were having that letter exchanged back and forth. And in the letter, Shakespeare wrote, I am still much interested in your experience with cell therapy. I recently had a physical exam. The doctor seemed disappointed as he could not find anything much wrong with me. Humble brag. (laughs) However, I do have aches and pains and shortness of breath, and I want to continue skiing and activity for a while longer. Fun fact about Shakespeare went skydiving for the first time after he turned 60. Wow. Uh, He says, I found a book by Emil Abderhalden. 
that was most interesting, though it did not go into his ferment tests very deeply. So then I had to look up Emil Alderhalden. Yeah, Yeah, and I'm like, what is this dude? So Emil Alderhalden, Abderhalden, according to Wikipedia, in late 1912, Abderhalden's defensive ferments reactions test uh, was applied to the differential diagnosis of dementia praecox from other mental diseases and from normals by Stuttgart psychiatrist August <laughs> Fauster. Man. Damn it. Why can't you all be Americans? Man, I hate, I hate pronouncing <laughs> I hate things forms. I don't feel good about. <laughs> and his miraculous claims of success were soon replicated by researchers in Germany and particularly in the United States. So like these two particular countries. Okay. Also, the Wait, timeline. 1912? 19- the psychiatrist was alive between 1856 and 1938, but this was the 1912 tests that uh, we're talking about. Okay. So I was going to say, when you talk about like, Scientists and Germany and the United States. Nazis I always coming think over. Nazis being brought over for the Cold War, essentially, to yeah. help us. But which, like, seems a little too early for that. Not outside of the realm of possibility okay. when you look further into this dude, especially because... when you're looking into eugenics. Yeah, because I mean, this like which is his also science in the same did realm. not hold up. Oh you know? well. <laughs> um, researchers in Germany, and particularly in the United States, however, despite the worldwide publicity, this quote blood test for madness which is what he wanted it to be he wanted it to be just like a blood test that could tell you if somebody was crazy uh generated within a few years the abderhalden fauser reaction was discredited and only a handful of american psychiatric researchers continued to believe in it certainly by 1920 the test was all but forgotten in the usa abderhalden's reputation continued to grow in germany however where collaborators managed to replicate and that's in quotation marks his results Usually by simply repeating experiments until they succeeded and discarding the negative results. Oh, okay. That's fine. Yeah. That's, sure. Um, that sounds like the exact opposite way to conduct any experiment ever. It's just not science. It's not you know? how you do it. Uh, Mythbusters. That's, yes. That sounds like a Mythbusters <laughs> way of going about science. Um, as Abderhalden was seen as the founder of scientific biochemistry in Germany, questioning his work could harm one's career still well after he had been discredited. Wow. Um, so, But that was specifically in Germany. Like, you know, nobody outside of Germany was having that conversation. But this was also, you know... What, what did I say? 1938 was when he was discredited. Yeah, I wonder if, because what cell therapy is that? What Shakespeare was interested in? Yeah, so he was interested in cell therapy. He wanted to stay young and like well forever. So whatever this like blood test was claiming to show you, kind of sounds like what 23andMe will do for you now. Is like here They'll your show you your little your indicators or whatever. Yeah. Like, you could be prone to breast cancer. You could, yeah. But imagine that doing that without called? any understanding of DNA. True. You yeah. know, like, that that just wasn't a thing yet. You got green here and purple there. Yeah. Figure it out. So, I mean, I'm sure these blood tests resulted in something. Mm-hmm. And Maybe it was one of those things where it's like, oh, he, he created this blood test to be... Uh, to tell you if you were mad. It was a test for madness. And he... But that failed. But what it actually did was regenerate cells. Mm. And then it was stolen. And he was discredited. Maybe yeah. Because I don't, I don't understand how he made the connection between cell therapy and staying young and a blood test for madness. Unless he knew more about it. Yeah, no. So this... <sighs> 
this doctor was one of the like he wanted to invest this was a conversation that he wanted to invest in okay you know so he wanted to put more money toward this um and the way we're talking about shakespeare really sounds like he only threw money at things that he shouldn't have um which wasn't the case but he had plenty of money to throw out and some of it he did just throw directly into the trash can um and it seems like this pursuit of cell therapy was one of those where he had a hope you know, and then it does seem like, you know, if you have a lot of money and you're aging, then the number one thing you might want to do with your money is live longer. True. So this could have just been all snowballing into a scam to convince rich people to invest in something that was never going to help them. Um, but he did have people who had undergone cell therapy that he was in you know correspondence with he wanted to know about the process wow and uh could not find anything about like multiple types of cell therapy treatments but it does seem like the starting point was this doctor and his madness test wow so yeah in conclusion um, we don't know who killed him. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh. It's so I do have like there are some there are some angles that I like more than others. Yeah, um, absolutely. I like the idea that this is like someone who was traveling through. Um, and I really like I was bothering you with so many links last time because I couldn't think uh, or I couldn't find this search angle that I had. But I want to know how many people are sitting in prison today for murders that they committed. And have committed other murders that haven't been solved. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because some murders are personal moment of passion, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But, like, even the concept of crime of passion has been pretty much debunked. Yeah. Um, and that, like, yes, while 4,000 of last year's murders were the result argument. of an argument. Yeah. Um, I think there's a type of person that ends an argument with a murder. Yes. And there are people who figure out other ways to end arguments. Yes, exactly. So, and also there's like the premeditation angle. Like how can you prove that it was not premeditated? Yeah. Like how can you prove that it was it happened in the heat of the moment? Yeah. And it wasn't something that was uh, created by that person. Like the heat of the argument was created by that person in order to... Yeah, like uh, you, you uh, intentionally escalate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like the idea that, and this is just what helps me sleep at night. That um, the murderers <laughs> are even caught, um, and for is in jail murder. somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's what I always thought about Don Kennedy Majors, and why I was so mad that they didn't question him because he's literally in prison in Illinois. Mm-hmm. He's arrested within hours of Centralia, like a month and a half later. And his crimes are the same. Like the last guy he murdered, first of all, he hooked up with guys uh, or with people, but it was men, through these sort of like sex magazines is all I could find on it from like Anne Rule's book and stuff. Through sex magazines, through like classifieds essentially, which we know John Shakespeare was a part of. Mm -hmm. And also the guy that he uh, almost murdered like a month before John Shakespeare in i think it was like indiana it was very close he literally tied him up in the basement yeah like he like he had an mo likely he was a redhead he may have been through centralia like there was just so much that was like why didn't they talk to this guy yeah 
Although everybody wanted to age, or like underage the hitchhikers. Like, I never saw an age that went above 35. Mm -hmm. And I think Wright, who had the second hitchhiker, said like between like early 20s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like 25, he thought. Yeah. So, and Don Kennedy Majors was anything but that. Like, Don Kennedy Majors was old. Yeah. Like, he had clearly, like, his face was doing that, like, I've been smoking most of my life. My It's going to cave in now. Mm-hmm. Like, he had that. I like meth. Already happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> Son of a yeah. Bitch. But no, like I definitely think Bernie Gross snuck into the basement. He was the foot of the the shoes that Ralph Porter heard and mm-hmm. like didn't know, but like you know probably like was scuttling away and trying to hide, and then was at least involved in how this went down. Possibly. Bernie Bernie Gross is just too weird He's of a, a weird. dude for He's me a weird to guy. count out. The thing that really stuck with me was the Studlands. Mm. and bob magnan that, that one's a really i just one. don't like how their stories contradicted each other and i also don't like how they did not think to investigate the steadlands and i just wonder if they did and they threw it out yeah because, because why not look into that he's the only person saying that shakespeare regularly missed he was the only yeah it, it just like it didn't add up to me Especially when you have the angle of Shakespeare being a pedophile. Mm-hmm. I just, I feel like, and maybe, maybe that wasn't something they were even thinking about back then. Yeah. Because it's not until the future, looking back, that you see, oh shit, Ron Goff, pedophile. Yeah. T.C. Cunningham, pedophile. These are like crimes All these that people came out in the in 90s his life, and early 2000s. Yeah. yeah. Are pedophiles. They are convicted. They are in prison. Mm-hmm. Or they're paroled and like, you know, being watched very closely. As they ought to be. As they ought to be, if even free. Yeah. So that was my, I, I liked that one. I liked that one and I liked the Cash. Cash, yeah. Sheridan, Folks. Unfortunately, though, none of those names popped up in the New York Correctional Facility. So if they did commit that crime together... You know, yeah, and I just don't know what to do with Huffman. Huffman. Yeah, I know. I don't know if he was just trying to make another buck or get another transfer. For me, if that's what he was trying to do, like that's a weird murder to try and do it with. Yeah, why not do one that's in New York State? Like, do one that's a little bit closer that happened a little less long ago. That yeah, you could speak to somebody who might have more control over your personal situation. Like, yeah. what's in Trier Cop is going to get you moved? Yeah, exactly. And if he was making it up and he knew about the murder that happened in Centralia, why would he send the letter to Hoffman? Yeah. I mean, I know the cars were kept in Hoffman, but pretty much, like, if he knew he was murdered, he knew it happened in Centralia. Yeah. I don't know. And you would never call Centralia Hoffman. No. But Not you if you mu- had a, you know, a newspaper article in front of you that said no. Centralia. No. But you could, like, I don't know. You like, could if, mix up the two if you were someone who was literally passing through town. Yeah. And didn't know any better because you weren't from here. Mm-hmm. Which Robert Cash and uh, those guys, they they did commit the crime in Jerseyville, but they weren't from Illinois. Yeah. And then there's the pirates. It might also be the pirates. <laughs> 
<laughs> was did they have a big cat on board? Because <laughs> oh. if so, we did it. <laughs> All right, let's go get some pizza. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to our second and most likely final report on the murder of John William Shakespeare. Thank you so much, Stephen, for Ooh. being my partner in not crime on this. <laughs> I was gonna say partner in crime, but my partner in anti-crime yeah it's been a it's been a strange journey Uh, i will be very excited to never read any of these again oh my god these file drops i i took i had to take a break because i had to separate myself Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i'm done with this one we've talked about steven and i have talked about potentially attempting another murder um i think we're gonna if we do we're gonna stick with the southern illinois centralia theme just Mm. because it's close to home we know people that we can talk to about it um but it's gonna be a minute i think (laughs) before i pick up another one of these i just i we've we've had so much information to go through i i can't imagine doing this for a living no are you kidding no oh So even though we won't be reporting on this case again, unless new information surfaces or someone makes a deathbed confession of some kind, if you do have any information on this case, please email me at keepitweirder at gmail.com. We're still going to be keeping our ears open on this case probably for the rest of our lives just to see if anything um, surfaces. So thank you, Stephen. And for you, you weirdos, be safe out there. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. I couldn't decide what I wanted my um, my sign-off to be, so it's all of these. Oh. Be safe. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Don't let your guard down. Be diligent and aware. Never go running. <laughs> and always keep it weird. Aww. The end. The end. That's too loud. Hello, hello. That's just right. How about you? Testy, test, test. <laughs> now, it seems now it seems like a more reasonable better. test. <laughs>